talking about sex? Come on, somebody. <laughs> Do you know we can talk about sex? Because God invented it. He loves it, man, within the boundaries that he's given. So we're going to talk about this, that this morning. But I want to pray before we do because um, we need revelation from Jesus. Amen. Father, we just uh, come before you. This is a subject that is so significant to your heart from the scriptures. And I'm just asking, Holy Spirit, that you would come and that you would break off dullness in this area, that you would expose demonic strongholds in our heart, that you would tear down false teaching and lies that we may have accumulated about what your heart and what your intentions are for us and our sexuality. This is a, uh, the Achilles heel of, of both men and women, God. We're just being assaulted in this area. And so I'm asking, spirit of wisdom and revelation, come and explode the word in our hearts, God. Make this come alive. I'm asking that you would just come and unfold the mysteries of the scriptures in our hearts this morning in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. All right. Well, sexual purity. That's, that's what we're going to be talking about. And, uh, I want to just begin by, does everybody know who I am? Like, who is this guy who came to teach? If you don't know, my name is Stephen Ugin. And uh, about 15 years ago, I was a corporate finance attorney, uh, going hard after the world, um, you know, living in the top floor of a building, wearing Armani suits, renting out limos on the weekends, flying around, staying at the W Hotel. That was my lifestyle. And I had an encounter with the living God. Um, I was not a believer. I, I just had a, a radical encounter with the Holy Spirit who introduced me to Jesus. How many know that the Holy Spirit likes to introduce people to Jesus? And uh, started to really begin to bring radical transformation to my life. And um, I came out of, from about 16, from about age 16 to 33, I was in serial relationships and tons of sexual encounters. So I went deep into you know sexual exploration, just did whatever I felt like. And uh, so I can come to you uh, with great authority because I am I'm a qualified sinner who got really saved by Jesus and who has had I mean, I was probably one of the most treacherous people I know. I mean, I would sleep with friends, girlfriends and wives. I mean, I'm not saying that to boast in that or be proud of that. It's it's an abomination to the Lord. But I want to tell you where I came from. So you understand that when I'm coming with this word, it's not from a place of self-righteousness. It's from a place of testifying about the power of God to transform someone's life from total sexual brokenness into sexual wholeness and purity. Amen. So um, I was like uh, a lot of people are, you know, in our culture you know, inundated with this, these sexual messages. Our culture is just saturated with sex and sex images and messages. And so it's really important, I think, that we understand the historical and prophetic context that we find ourselves in to be living in this generation. Um, this is a significant generation to be alive. And I want to talk a little bit about that from the scriptures um, because... In the midst of a culture that's increasing in darkness, 
um, it's even more important that we're grounded in the truth of the scriptures. Amen. Um, it says in the last days, the Bible says that darkness will cover the earth. Uh, even gross darkness, the people that's out of Isaiah 60 verse two. And Jesus said in Matthew 24 that at the end of this age, um, it will be like the days of Noah. How many know what it was like in the days of Noah as you read the scriptures? People were doing whatever they felt like doing. That's what it was like. And, and Jesus is saying in Matthew 24 that before I return, it will be like the days of Noah. How many think it's like the days of Noah? I think it's a little bit interesting that the movie Noah is out, don't you? Um, yeah, uh, that the movie Noah is out and... Uh, our culture is much like the days of Noah, where the moral fabric of society will become so corrupt that people will call evil good and good evil. How many have heard that? That's out of Isaiah 5.20. That it'll be so dark that people will literally call what's good evil, and what's evil they will call good. The spiritual, political, this is uh, uh, Jesus kind of talking. I'm giving you a paraphrase out of Matthew 24 verse 21 and 22, it says the spiritual, political, and economic atmosphere will become so dark and dangerous that unless the time is shortened, everyone will perish. That's pretty intense. I mean, it's going to get so bad and so dark that everyone will perish. God warns us, and this is out of 1 Timothy 4.1. We are going to get into the Scriptures, but just to kind of give this background material, I'm just going to hit on a few of these things to kind of set a context for where we're going. Um, God warns that even believers will turn away from the true faith and follow deceptive spirits and teachings that come from demons. That's 1 Timothy 4.1. And that a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching they will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. How many know what itching ears are? Itching ears are basically ears that they want to hear what they want to hear. And, and how many know that you can go into this book and actually find whatever you want to find? If you have set your heart on sin, you can find a way to actually justify it in the Word of God. So we have to understand that about ourselves that this... There is a tendency in our fallen sinful nature to want to hear things that we want to hear rather than let the word of truth come and pierce our heart and change us and challenge the parts of us that don't line up with the word of truth. Amen. So we need to be aware of that tendency in our own hearts as well as the spirit of the age that is constantly trying to reinforce our flesh and come into partnership with our flesh. What it tells us, as you you know, just hear some of these little snippets from the scriptures, is that in the last days there's going to be huge deception both inside and outside of the church that will cause people to have a wrong view of what is right and what is wrong. With the level of darkness that is coming upon the earth right now, beloved, it has become there has never been a generation that it's been more important to know what's written in God's word and to stay close to Jesus. Would you agree with me? OK, it's more important in this generation than any generation that's ever lived on the earth, because the scriptures tell us that darkness is going to be increasing until the day of the Lord returns. I want to talk uh, with that context 
I want to talk a little bit about God's design for sexuality. And we see a little glimpse of that in Genesis 1. You guys can go there with me. Go to Genesis 1. If you've got your Bibles, I'd love to hear those pages turn. We're going to go to the beginning to find out what God's heart is for sexuality. In Genesis 1, verse 27, we see that God created male and female in His image. In His image, He created them, the Scriptures tell us. What that lets us know is that when God created us, He created Adam, and then from Adam, He took His rib, the rib out of Adam, and He created Eve. So He took woman out of man, but we don't reflect, we reflect accurately who God is when we're joined together. When he pulled us apart, each of us took a f- facets of God's character. And it's only when we're together, we were made to be put together. And together we act more accurately reflect God's character and nature. So when we, uh, sex was designed as an expression of deep intimacy, as well as the creative and life producing power of God in childbearing. Okay, that's that's God's creativity and power to create life is represented in childbearing, which is a fruit of sexual intimacy. But it's not just a physical act between a male body and a female body. It's way more than that. In fact, it's designed to be a convergence of our emotions and our spirits. So there's not just a physical connection that sexual intimacy is supposed to represent, but a deep emotional connection and a deep spiritual connection as well. Um, So that is why God says in Genesis 2.24, go ahead and turn the page there, in Genesis 2.24... He says, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Are you seeing that? Okay, so two distinct beings become one in the eyes of God when they come together in that deeply intimate way where they're connecting physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Jesus also described and reinforced this understanding of supernatural union between a man and a woman In Mark 10, go there with me, Mark 10, the Gospel of Mark. When he says this, he said, God made them male and female from the beginning of creation. Sound familiar? That's our Genesis 1 passage. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. So Jesus is confirming, you know, the word of the father. Since they're no longer two but one, let no one split apart what God is joined together. And of course, God joining them together represents that supernatural bond uh, that's supposed to happen when a man and woman become wife or husband and wife. And this picture of relationship rooted in deep intimacy, um, that they're no longer separate, but one reflection of the divine nature uh, is a reflection, excuse me, of the divine nature of the Father and the Son and their unity in the Spirit. And we're going to look at that in just a second. Let's go to John seventeen twenty one. Go to John seventeen twenty one. Jesus reveals this aspect of God's uh, nature and character when He prays in John seventeen. We're going to pick up in verse twenty one. Are you guys there? John seventeen. This is what Jesus prays. He says, "I pray that they will all be one." Just as you and I are one, he's talking to the Father, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you, and may they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. 
The Greek term for this radical level of intimacy is called perichoresis. Perichoresis literally means mutual indwelling. So the Father is in the Son, and the Son is in the Father, and you can throw the Holy Spirit into the mix. He's, isn't He in us, and when He's in us, it allows us to be in God. It's this supernatural level of intimacy with God, uh, and, and between, within the Godhead, that's characterized by this term perichoresis. Now, not in a, you know, obviously the Trinity is not in a sexual way per se, but when a husband and a wife engage in lovemaking, it's designed to be a manifestation of perichoresis and the deepest expression of intimacy possible between a man and a woman. God's design is that that level of intimacy would take place in covenant relationship, which is a context of mutual trust, submission and commitment. Amen. So that's that's an incredible deep intimacy. And you can see that that's a picture of this incredible intimacy that's even within the Godhead. And I, I just want to say this, you guys. God is like a huge fan of sex. He, he invented it. I mean, it came from him. So I think like our wrong understanding that somehow God is like some cosmic prude. And like, I, I mean, that, isn't that kind of how we like get a skewed view of who he is, that he's sort of this cosmic prude that's got this list of do's and don'ts, don't do this, don't do that. I mean, that's kind of the way I looked at it before I actually got revelation about what his heart is on this matter. God loves sex. He wants you to have lots of it. He wants you to have enjoyment from it within the boundaries that he's established for our own safety. Okay? So he's like, go crazy, have sex, that's awesome. Within the bounds... That the father has established. So he's not a prude. He loves sex. Okay. Amen. We just need to come back into that. No, isn't that awesome? I mean, he, how many love the fact that God loves sex, man? This is awesome, dudes. Just turn to one another, man. Just tell each other, convince each other. God loves sex. High five, man. This is, this is awesome news, man. I mean, there's the gospel and then there's this other message that God loves sex. It's right there. It's one of the top ten as far as I'm concerned. Okay. What's happened to this awesome uh, picture of deep intimacy is that it's been redefined and hijacked by the enemy of our souls. He, his desire is to pervert the original design and to reduce sex to physical activity to lust without intimacy and commitment. His goal is to destroy covenant intimacy with our spouse and with God through sexual immorality. He wants to twist it to cause us to break fellowship with God and break fellowship. How many are married in this room? Any? We got? Okay. Two married. Okay. How many want to be married someday? Okay. Awesome. Awesome. So this is, so, this is a relevant message for everybody. Um, the world system that we see, the culture that we see and experience, you guys, is largely an outworking of this intention by the enemy of our souls to pervert sexuality, to twist it and to present to us a counterfeit version of it that will take us out of relationship with God and destroy our relationships. And I want to say this, and I, and, and I believe this is going to resonate with a lot of you. From, from when we're little boys, our understanding of sexuality is being twisted and perverted. 
And the enemy's trying to hijack it from us. Because I don't know about you guys, but I felt like there was an, there was an unspoken pressure from my peers that I was going to get life approval and affirmation through my sexual exploits. Did anybody ever feel that growing up? Did anybody ever experience that kind of like subtle sometimes and not so subtle peer pressure that I was going to get my identity, worth, and value from my peers, the other males in my peer group, by my sexual exploits? I mean, I had guys coming up to me all the time like, you know, asking me, hey, man, what'd you do with her? What'd you do with her? You know what I mean? Sort of trying to mine that stuff and sort of built this culture of approval based on sexual exploits. We're encouraged by our culture to engage in sexual exploration. Is that not true? Is that not the way of the world? Go try it. Do what feels good to you. Is that not like the, 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 the message that we're bombarded with all over our culture? Everywhere in our culture, there's sex. How many would agree with that? I mean, sex on the Internet, sex in movies, sex in advertising, television, billboards, bathrooms. You can't escape it. Escape this. In fact, you guys have heard sex sells. It's not right. I mean, if you want to sell something, attach sex to it. You know, I mean, I, I mean, you know, come buy this vacuum cleaner and you'll get And the implication is you'll get this beautiful woman who's standing next to it. And it actually works. We actually think that way. It actually motivates us to do things that we otherwise wouldn't do because they just put a beautiful woman next to something or a beautiful man next to something on a billboard. Sex in video games, sex in the grocery store at the checkout. I mean, you can't go anywhere. Sex in the urinals, man, digital like signboard. You can't go to the bathroom without like being bombarded with this thing. I mean, you, you've got to be blind to not see what the world system is trying to impart in terms of values and, and, and understanding of our sexuality. Our culture believes that there's no boundaries to sexual expression. And unfortunately, I wish this was different, but that kind of mentality has actually permeated the church in a lot of ways. Instead of us influencing the culture with holiness, we've been infiltrated with spiritual darkness in this area. And it's significant. And God's heart is burning on this issue. Burning on this issue because Jesus said that he was going to come back for a spotless bride. That's a bride without wrinkle or blemish. That's a bride that's not walking in sexual compromise, but a bride that's walking in sexual purity by the power of the Holy Spirit. According to one study, and there's many studies out there, you can get all kinds of numbers, but this is, I think it was a Barna Group study. We have five out of ten pastors. Now, when I say five out of ten pastors, I'm including all the mainline churches and apostate churches. And so there's definitely compromise in some of these churches. We have, but, but I know that there's probably pastors that are in charismatic and Pentecostal and evangelical churches that fall in this group as well. Five out of ten pastors have looked at Internet pornography in the last year. Do you, I mean, do you think we have an issue? Um, it says 50% of Christian, and I use that term lightly, I, I do believe there are genuine Christians that struggle with sexual sin. This is a huge issue in our culture for obvious reasons. It's a burning issue in the heart of God. But 50% of Christian men say that they're addicted to pornography. That's not just they looked at it once and then repented or you know had a bad thought. I'm talking about addicted to pornography. 20% of women. 
So this isn't just a male problem. Our, our culture has been so saturated with sex that it's not just affecting men, but it's also affecting women. And I would argue that if it's affecting men, it is affecting women indirectly. Because if you're, if you're looking at porn, it's going to have an impact on your spouse. If you're looking at, you know, whether it's your spouse now or your future wife, it has an impact. And we're going to talk about that. Pornography is a $14 billion a year industry in the U.S. This is big dollars, you guys. Big dollars because the enemy knows the Achilles heel of men and women in our culture. And he's going to hit it as hard as he can. Because the culture is so charged with sexual darkness, many have chosen to compromise with the culture. Instead of contending for purity and holiness, we've come into agreement with the world. Fearing persecution and disdain from the culture, we've acquiesced on clear biblical truth. And I'm going to share an example with you. How many have heard of World Vision? World Vision. It's a massive ministry. They, they work with the poor all over the world. It's been a, a, a very strong advocate of biblical values and truth. The, the president of World Vision just made a public announcement that they are now allowing uh, same-sex Christians to work on their staff. Couples that are married and in same-sex relationships to work on their staff. And they said they, they, said they don't see that as a compromise or a slippery slope. And I'm telling you, beloved, that we are seeing the reality of Scripture being that, that has been prophesied come to life in our very generation. The Scriptures say there's going to be a great falling away and great deception that sweeps over the nations of the earth, including the church. And so I'm just telling you, you guys, this is, this is happening like in real time in the last 24 hours. Now, fortunately, there's been a radical backlash against that announcement by the true church of Jesus Christ. You know, again, we're not hating on people who are trapped in homosexual sin any more than we're hating on people who are trapped in prostitution. But we're saying if we stop being a prophetic voice for righteousness, what will happen? It'll just sweep over everyone. These kinds of things, compromises with the world have real implications. And you're going to see that as we get into the get into the scriptures. I believe God is, is calling us to come out of the darkness and to take a stand for righteousness in this hour. Because the day of the Lord is at hand where the, enemy, where the world system and the nations of the earth are going to be judged by the righteousness of Christ. And we need a prophetic witness of the reality of it. In fact, God says it this way in Revelation 18.4. Um, I'm not going to go into the context of that, but I believe that it's an applicable scripture to our current, to the, to the days that we're in. The Lord says, come away from her, my people. Do not take part in her sins or you will be punished with her. I just feel like the Spirit of God is calling us out of the system to be in the world, but not of it. Amen? We can stand for righteousness and still be in the world, but not take part in the sin of the world. The world, you guys, is desperate for the reality of the kingdom of God. For people who actually believe that this is true and that Jesus can set them free from sin. And I think that's one of the biggest sins that we're battling in the Church of America is that we've lost the fundamental belief that the gospel has the power to actually change people. That the gospel actually has the power to set people free from sin. It doesn't mean you're not going to have temptation, but the grace of God is available to, to set us free from sin. And I think there's a huge abuse of the doctrine of grace in the American church. 
You know, for so many, grace has become a license to stay in a compromised lifestyle rather than what its intention is, which is divine empowerment to turn away from sin and walk in holiness. It's a huge difference. And so you need to be aware of that kind of abuse of of the grace message and, you know, be firmly rooted and grounded in the heart of God on this. I want to talk a little bit, and we're going to do we're going to do a two part teaching. There's so much here because I want to um, I want to lay the biblical foundation for why this sexual purity issue matters to you guys, and not only to you guys, but to your future spouses, families, and to the people around you. Why you walking in purity has a huge impact on many other people. We're going to talk about that. So I'm going to lay that foundation this week, and then next week we're going to get into very we're going to we're going to answer the question. So if, if we know all this is true, why are we still walking in sexual sin as a church? OK, and how can we practically partner with the Holy Spirit to actually walk in purity? How many would like to know how to have victory in the area of purity and be able to walk it out? OK, so we're going to get into that next week. And I believe the Lord's going to just give us grace to get revelation because you can, how many know you can hear a teaching, but unless the Lord comes and opens it up in your own heart and makes it real, it's not going to accomplish anything. So I'm praying for ears to hear and for revelation. In fact, let's pray that right now. Father, we just come before you again, recognizing we don't need another teaching. What we need is revelation from the throne room. Would you come and strike hearts with this truth? Open up ears to hear God, what you are saying. Those who have ears to hear, listen to what the Spirit of God is saying. Come and bear witness to your heart, Father, in the Word, in Jesus' name. Okay. Um, God provides sexual boundaries, boundaries around expressions of our sexuality, for really good reasons. It's not that He's a divine control freak. Okay? But rather, he understands the consequences of sexual sin, and he wants to protect us from those significant consequences. Go with me to 1 Corinthians, you guys. Go with me to 1 Corinthians. So God's not a control freak. He just knows that if we go outside of his design and outside of the boundaries that he set, that there's significant consequences Spiritually, emotionally, and physically, not only to ourselves but to other people, uh, and and these consequences, some of them have eternal significance. First Corinthians six. First Corinthians six. Sorry, I didn't didn't release the chapter. That'd be helpful. Verses nine through eleven. Nine through eleven. I'm going to read it out loud for you. Now, this is the Apostle Paul speaking to the Corinthian church. He says, "Don't you realize?" That those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God. Don't fool yourselves. I want to just stop right there. What he's saying is, there's going to be a tendency, there's a tendency for self-deception in some of these areas. So what he's trying to do is he's trying to set your heart to receive what he's saying. And Jesus would often do that. Remember, he would use the phrase, those with ears to hear, listen to what the Spirit is saying. When he'd use that phrase, or as Paul's using it basically here, he's saying, don't fool yourselves. He's saying, hey, we have a tendency to hear what we want to hear in this area. But don't let that happen. Open up your heart and receive the word of the Lord. Okay? So he says, don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols, or commit adultery, or are male prostitutes, 
or practice homosexuality or are thieves or greedy people or drunkards or are abusive or cheat people, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. Seems like a significant issue, doesn't it? I mean, if it's on this list, and of course, it's not just sexual sin on this list. So, you know, I mean, sin is an equal opportunity destroyer. Okay, it doesn't it's not just sexual sin, but sexual sin is a major focus of this list. Homosexuality, prostitution, indulging in sexual sin will not inherit the kingdom of God. Listen to verse 11. Some of you were once like that, but... You were cleansed, you were made holy, you were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I want to talk about that last sentence for a second because it talks about two facets of our salvation. One which is justification. How many have heard that term before? Justification is the calling on the name of the Lord Jesus, right? When God found you, you, hadn't, you didn't do anything. You were just there, you came to Teen Challenge maybe, and He just encountered, He set you up. To, to reveal himself to you and to hijack your heart. Okay. Justification is what Christ has done for us. Okay. That he's, he died for all of our sins. Sanctification, because he says, who call in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God, I believe is referring to that partnership between us and the Holy Spirit to walk into progressive holiness because the Holy Spirit's bringing conviction of areas of our life that need to be brought into alignment with God's word. Amen. So he's saying you've been made holy both by justification and by the ongoing work of sanctification, whereby you come into agreement with God, partner with the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit comes and gives you grace to turn away from sin. Amen. You are tracking me so far. OK, very important justification, and the partnership we have with God in the sanctification process. Go with me, you guys. We're going to look at another passage. Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Let's go there. Listen to this in verse 3. Again, the Apostle Paul now addressing the Ephesian church. He says this, Let there be no sexual immorality. No means no, amen? No doesn't mean some. I'm... I'm I'm brought back to Jesus when he has this encounter. Remember the encounter he had with the adulterous woman where the Pharisees dragged her literally out of the room where she was having sex with a married man and wanted Jesus to stone him, stone, stone her and pick up. the. And then he said, "Ye who has the first who, who hasn't committed sin, pick up the first stone and throw it at her, basically. And what happened? They all walked away. So he called out all the hypocrites and then he turned to her and he had such mercy on her. But he said, go and sin no more. He didn't say go and do your best. He said go and sin no more. And obviously when he says that, he knows that he's created a provision of grace for us to actually walk in that. That's not that we never make mistakes. I don't think perfection is what God is after, although we've set our hearts towards perfection, amen, because we're following the perfect man, Jesus. Uh, But he does want us to quickly acknowledge our wrongdoing and turn from it, get back up and keep going. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. So he says, let there be no sexual immorality, impurity or greed among you. Such sins have no place among God's people. Obscene stories, foolish talk and coarse jokes. These are not for you. Instead, let there be thankfulness to God. You can be sure that no immoral, impure or greedy person will inherit the kingdom of Christ and of God. For a greedy person is an idolater worshiping the things of this world. Listen to this in verse six. Here we hear it again. Don't be fooled by those who try to excuse these sins. 
What is he telling us prophetically? What is the spirit of God telling us in our generation? There will be people who will try to deceive you on this matter. There will be people who will stand up preaching out of the scriptures that will try and confuse you about what the heart of God is. He says, don't be fooled by those who try and excuse these sins. Isn't that the tendency? Isn't that our tendency, beloved? Don't we have kind of pet sins that then we scour the scriptures to prop up like our position so we can continue to stay in it rather than say, you know what? If I'm off on this, I want to hear it, God. That heart posture will produce revelation, conviction of sin and repentance. But if you push away the knowledge of the truth, the consequence of it is that you don't get the truth and you stay in deception. I'm reminded of the proverb that says there's a path before each man that seems right but it leads to destruction. Amen. There's a powerful self-deception mechanism operating in our hearts and it's, and we, we can find agreement. How many know you can find a cloud of witnesses to agree with anything that you want to do? Don't find safety in that. Find safety alone in the foundation, in the cornerstone of Christ in the foundation laid by the apostles and prophets in his word. Let the plumb line of the word strike your heart and let him change you and transform you. Then he goes on to say, so I'm going to start back up in verse 6. Don't be fooled by those who try to excuse these sins. He's basically saying there's going to be great deception. For the anger of God will fall on all who disobey Him. Don't participate in the things these people do. What is that referring to? It's back to that Revelation 14. Come out of Babylon, beloved. Don't participate in what the world is doing. In James chapter 4, he says, Don't you realize your friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? Don't be friends with the world. What does that mean from a practical standpoint? Don't do the things the world is doing. If you find yourself doing the things the world is doing, that should be a yellow flag in your spirit. Okay? God has got a totally different design for how His people are going to live their lives. There's really good reasons for it. For once you were full of darkness, but now you have light from the Lord. This is verse 8. So live as people of the light, for this light within you produces only what is good and right and true. The early apostles understood the significance of sexual immorality as a danger to God's people. In fact, you guys might remember this encounter. Paul and uh, Barnabas are in Antioch and some Judaizers come and try and get them to be circumcised. Do you remember this? And Paul and Barnabas argue vehemently against it. They're like, we're not under the law anymore. We're saved by grace. We're saved by faith in Christ and repentance that's empowered by His grace. And, and so they go to Jerusalem to get a ruling on the matter. So they take several people from uh, Antioch to Jerusalem and they present their case before the apostles in Jerusalem. They have a debate uh, in Acts uh, chapter 15. And then uh, the apostle James gets up and he says, this is, what, this is the instruction to bring back to these believers. They didn't want to encumber them with the law, but they said, these are some significant things. At least tell them to do these things. And this is what he said in Acts 15.20. You guys can go there if you're, if you're close by. He says it again in Acts 15.29 and Acts 21.25. But he says, abstain from eating food offered to idols. Abstain from eating food offered to idols. From sexual immorality... <laughs> from eating the meat of strangled animals and from consuming blood. You notice he didn't say anything about tithing to the Gentile believers. That's a whole different message, man. But the main message is this. 
He said, abstain from sexual immorality. I don't know that we've got a lot of food offered to idols, although it does happen in some cultures around the world. Um, eating the meat of strangled animals, don't think that's that common. Consuming blood, yeah, uh, not doing that either. But sexual immorality sure applies to us, wouldn't you say? So he's like, the one thing I want you to focus on is abstain from sexual immorality. Tell them to abstain from that, and we're going to see why. There's really good reasons for that. I want to talk a little bit about some of the, some of the reasons why sexual, what, what sexual sin does to us and why God is so adamant about this. Um, go with me to 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians 6. Besides the eternal implications, which I think are significant, of, of walking in willful sexual sin... Another significant consequence of sexual sin is that it destroys intimacy with God. It destroys intimacy with God. When we go outside of God's boundaries for righteous sexuality and we choose sexual sin rather than God as our source of life, relief, or affirmation, we break fellowship with Him until there's genuine repentance. And make no mistake about it, that's really what this is about. It's about choosing sexual sin over Jesus. That's what this is about. It's about, will you choose Jesus in that moment of temptation, or will you choose sexual sin? Just breaking it down for you. So, when we do that, we're basically saying, no God, I want this as my source of affirmation, as my source of comfort, as my source of relief, not you. That's the reality of what we're doing, beloved. And so it breaks fellowship with him. When we choose something else, not God, we're breaking fellowship until there's genuine repentance. I'm not saying the Holy Spirit leaves you because you watch internet porn, but you grieve the Holy Spirit. And if you do it in a persistent enough way, I would say that's dangerous. Dangerous. Okay, so listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians 6. Are you guys there? He says, run, this is Apostle Paul, run from sexual sin. I don't know that he's ever said that about any other type of sin in the scriptures. I haven't read it. But he says, run from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. I would argue against the body of Christ as well. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price. You must honor God with your body. When we surrender our lives to God, what's happening, beloved? How many know that the temple in Jerusalem used to be the dwelling place of the manifest Shekinah glory of God? He came and dwelled among men, but it was behind a veiled curtain. Well, Christ died on the cross, and we know this from the gospel accounts, that as he gave up his spirit, the curtain that separated the most holy place where the Shekinah glory of God dwelled over the Ark of the Covenant was torn in two from the top to the bottom, signifying that Jesus had made a way for us to go into the throne room of God because of his blood. Okay? Now, it's no longer, in in AD 70, the Romans came and wiped out the temple in Jerusalem, which fulfilled Jesus' prophecy in the Gospels, that every stone of that temple would be torn down and be rubble. Signifying to the Jewish people prophetically, I no longer accept the sacrifice of goats and bulls and doves. One sacrifice has come once for all time, and this temple will not be rebuilt in the way you think it will. It'll be rebuilt with human stones that are being filled by my spirit. Do you know we are becoming, 
assembled as new people come into the kingdom of God. They become stones in the temple of God that will be part of. We will be the temple in the new Jerusalem. We are the temple of the living. How many know you have the God dwelling on the inside of you? If you've surrendered to him, he lives on the inside of you. You are the temple. So does it become significant that the temple would be set apart and holy and consecrated to the Lord? Absolutely. This is no small matter. The Jews in the Old Testament took this lightly and actually started to do, you know, sex acts in the temple of the Lord. I mean, at, at some of the worst, you know, the, the darkest hour of Jerusalem before they were exiled. And at one point, the glory of the Lord in Ezekiel leaves the temple because it's so defiled. Now, thank God we have Jesus. Amen. But, but we can take a lesson from the Old Testament temple and know that we don't want to create a toxic environment for the living God to dwell on the inside of us. This is one of the main drivers of the demonic mobilization of sexual immorality in our culture. Is this reality that we are the temple of the living God. The enemy wants to defile people with sexual darkness and create atmospheres that are toxic to God's presence. The explosion of pornography in our culture, the embracing of homosexuality, the increasing acceptance of sexual promiscuity and the pervasiveness of adultery. The enemy knows that sexual immorality defiles the temple and separates us from the manifest presence of God, sears our conscience and dulls our ability to hear God's voice. That's why the enemy has targeted us with crazy levels of sexual darkness because he knows it will defile us. He knows it will dull our spirits, sear our consciences, you know, to, to the living God who's trying to communicate with us and draw us back into God, within godly boundaries so that we can hear his voice and experience great intimacy with him. So sexual, sexual, uh, sexual sin destroys our intimacy with God. Sexual sin also destroys your intimacy with your spouse. And this is for sure for married people, but it's, it's for you guys who are going to be married. And even now I believe it has implications. Because getting married is not going to solve your sexual sin problem. If you've got a sexual sin problem, you're going to carry it into your marriage. And if you think God's excited about bringing one of His beloved daughters into relationship with someone who's defiling their temple and releasing defilement upon His daughter, you are sadly mistaken. So if you don't think that you getting a handle of God's heart for sexual purity is connected to him bringing your spouse, you're crazy. You're crazy. He is. He wants to get you in a place where you're walking in understanding so that when he brings your wife, it's built on a foundation of sexual purity. Amen. Come on, somebody. Real talk. Real talk. You want a wife? Get serious about God's heart for sexual purity. Wisdom from heaven. Um, sexual sin destroys intimacy with your spouse. Sexual immorality, pornography, and adultery are primary causes of divorce. Anybody been divorced? Okay, a few. Not, no, no, I mean, no condemnation for that. It happens, man. We're broken human beings. But it's these sexual immorality and darkness is one of the primary causes of relational brokenness. Okay. I want to share uh, a personal testimony about that revelation uh, from my own life. 
Um, I have a couple of them, actually, two or three short little testimonies I want to share with you guys. The first one, I was newly married. I mean, newly married. I was maybe three months into my marriage, and I was taking my wife to a restaurant, and all of a sudden, this beautiful woman walks out, and I just completely like went, you know, in my heart, whoa, and looked at this woman, and immediately my wife felt my spirit disengage. How many know when you're one, you're one? So when my wife felt my spirit disengage and connect with that woman, she immediately was wounded, hurt, and offended. Now, I didn't know this. By the way, the date didn't go very well after that. How many know that sexual darkness really like is a buzzkill for dates? Okay. And what I didn't know is that my wife had grown up with a father who would go out with her mother and be looking at all the other women in the room. And she saw that and saw that modeled to her. And so it was more than me just looking at that woman. It was pulling back into deep wounds of rejection and how she had seen, you know, males model sexual darkness and immorality. And so, I mean, it took about three or four years to work that one out, that one incident. Okay, so this is serious, man. It breaks intimacy with your spouse when you're unfaithful with your spirit and your heart and what you gaze upon. And I want to, we'll talk about that a little bit more. So that was one of them. Um, there's a second situation where um, I was out do, running errands and and uh, I saw a woman and I just gave her, you know, like three or four seconds of my attention. I'm, I'm not even saying I played pornographic movies or you know my mind didn't go there. We'll, we'll talk about that. How you let thoughts turn into movies and play out in your mind and then they take root in your mind and then they grow roots into your spirit. We're going to talk about how the enemy works and how sexual bombardment happens on our soul. Um, so I, I came home and all of a sudden I was talking to my wife and she got real short with me. And I'm like, what's going on, man? I didn't do nothing that I had done in that situation warranted her response to me. And I'm like, God, I, I just asked this question. I'm like, God, what's going on? And you know what he did? He showed me a picture of me looking at that woman earlier in the day. And he connected the dots for me. I hadn't seen it before, but he directly connected the dots between my walking in purity and my intimacy with my spouse. He said, you opened a door here. I'm like, no way. And I repented. But it's through situations like that that I hope you can take counsel and wisdom. This is that real. It's that real. There's that direct a connection between your purity walk and your ability to experience intimacy with the wife that God wants to bring you. The third one, I had, uh, you know, I don't know if you guys ever struggled with this, but I always struggle a little bit with sort of the bridal, like being the bride of Christ as a guy. Anybody ever like go, how does that work? You know, it's kind of gender bending and uh, I'm like, okay, I'll just believe it by faith. Okay, Jesus. Yep. Bride of Christ. But I had a revelation of 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 not only marrying Christ. Actually, this revelation was about bringing my bride to the Lord. And I remember I was I, I was worshiping and in the spirit, I began to have a vision and I saw my wife and she was just literally in this dress, this wedding dress made of light. Her face was just beautiful, like, you know, she was in her glorified body and she had her glorified wedding dress on. And I remember bringing her down. I was, I was the one bringing her down the aisle and presenting her to Jesus so that they could be married for all time. It was a little bit weird because I'm like, wait a minute, I'm giving my wife to Jesus. This is weird. But then there was grace and I'm like, okay, 
This is okay. It's Jesus. <laughs> so I gave her to him and he smiled at me and then he gave her back to me. And, and I felt like the message that he was trying to communicate to me was, Stephen, I've given you a stewardship over your wife. And when you walk in purity, you're actually presenting your wife to me spotless and without blemish. And I'll tell you how it got even more real for me. I was out in New York uh, on, a, on a street preaching mission and one-on-one witnessing. He, uh, we, we, were up in, we were in Manhattan. We were staying at a friend of his house. and We were up on the top floor of a, of a penthouse. You know, they have... In, in Manhattan, they have apartment buildings that are kind of like really fancy hotels. They have concierges and they have party rooms and stuff. And I was sitting there writing up my report for our witnessing that day. And all of a sudden, there's all these beautiful women and men just kind of mingling. People that were like, that, that was my old life, man. Like people who are really wealthy and just looking good and living the high life in Manhattan. And I just, you know, some of the women just kind of caught my the attention of my heart. It wasn't a lot, you guys. I'm not talking about like... I wasn't playing movies of me having sex with them or I didn't even go there. I was just realizing that my heart was being drawn to looking at them. And as I was going to sleep, all of a sudden the spirit of the Lord brought up a picture of my wife and just blood splattered over her white dress. I was like, what is that? And the Lord brought me back to just, you know, looking at those women that night. And again, he was just reinforcing me, Stephen. This is real. When you make those choices, it's got consequences, not only to you, but to your bride. And so you might think, wow, this is a little intense. I'm telling you, this is reality. Now, the good news is there's grace because I just repented, confessed, and I saw the blood just off her dress in an instant. So it's not that we're not going to make mistakes, but in God's grace, we're going to make less and less until the day of the Lord. Okay. So those are some real personal ways that God showed me that sexual sin destroys intimacy uh, with my spouse. The other thing that I believe the Lord wants us to understand is that sexual sin releases spiritual darkness into your family. It releases spiritual darkness into your family. Sexual sin impacts your entire family. Um, The first evidence of the generational consequences of sin, I think we don't have to go far, is in the book of Genesis. I mean, Adam and Eve sinned, they disobeyed God, and we're still experiencing the consequences, aren't we? Aren't we? Are you experiencing the consequences of Adam and Eve's sin? Of course you are. It's our sin nature. This whole battle we can attribute to them making that decision to disobey God. It's no different now. Sin has got generational implications. And we're going to look at that uh, in Exodus 34. Go there with me. Exodus 34. You guys doing all right? Tracking? Okay. Getting anything? Okay. Exodus 34. Exodus 34. Verses 6 and 7. Exodus 34, 6 and 7. Now, the context is Moses is basically saying, God, would you reveal yourself to me? Would you reveal your character to me? I want to know you. I want to know your ways. And in verse 6, um, God reveals Himself to Moses. Remember He says, I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock because no one can see me face to face or they'll die because He's holy. Um, so He puts him in the cleft of the rock and He covers him as He passes by. This is what the Lord says as He passes by Moses in verse 6. 
Yahweh, the Lord passed in front of Moses, calling out, Yahweh, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy. I'm slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. Verse 7. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but I do not excuse the guilty. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children and grandchildren. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations. Whoa. Whoa, somebody. Whoa. Now, it's important for us to understand what the heart of God is. He opens this up saying, I'm the God of compassion and mercy. I'm slow to anger and filled with unfailing love. God's heart desires to bless to how many generations? How many? A thousand generations. But he says, if you do disobey me, notwithstanding knowing my heart intention for you, there's going to be consequences to the third and fourth generations. Now, the good news for us as New Testament believers who aren't under the law is that there are generational consequences that you're experiencing from the sins of your ancestors. But as you stand before the Lord and and repent for your involvement with them and theirs, he breaks those consequences off. So the cross is powerful enough to break those generational consequences, but we need to acknowledge that they're actually there and that we've done things that have affected others, not just ourselves. That's why God is so fervent about about these issues, beloved, and about make, getting us out of sin and walking in His ways, because it's not just us. I know that's the popular kind of American church version of sin, is that it only affects you. In fact, I've heard it out of believers' mouths. Well, I don't see what the problem is with pornography. I'm going to share a story with you later that's going to blow that out of the water. It doesn't affect anybody else. Wrong. It does affect other people. It affects your family, the people you're relating with, and the body of Christ. It absolutely affects us. So, the counter-reality, though, is that our sin affects our families for multiple generations. Sexual sin is no exception to this spiritual principle. Even the disciples of Jesus understood this basic teaching when they asked this question. This is out of John 9. They said, "Why would, you remember this, you guys? Why was this man born blind? Was it because of his sins or his parents' sins? Remember that? When they asked him that, that was accepted teaching. And you'll notice Jesus did not rebuke them and say, that's wrong. He said, in this case, this man was born blind so that God's glory can be revealed. But he did not rebuke that teaching. He said that that, those principles do apply. But in this case, he was born blind so that God could heal him and his testimony could ring through the generations, which it has to this very day. So this is not just some Old Testament thing. This, is, this was there when Jesus was there. This was an understanding of his disciples. Um, one of the most powerful biblical examples of the consequences of sexual sin was the life of David. David had many wives and concubines, but he committed adultery with Bathsheba and had her, her husband Uriah killed. Do you remember this? This was a big deal. This was a big deal. So he's got everything his heart desires, but he wants that woman who happens to be married to Uriah. Nathan the prophet comes to him. We're going to go there. Go to 2 Samuel 2. Or excuse me, 2 Samuel uh, 12. David commits adultery with Bathsheba in 2 Samuel 11. Then in 2 Samuel 12... um, Nathan the prophet comes to him, and I want to just do a a quick aside on this. 
God will try and warn you and come to you personally about sexual sin. But if you persist in resisting, he will send someone to confront you. Why? Because he loves you. How many would like to just deal with it before it gets to that level? (laughs) Wouldn't that be good? I would. But it's happened to me. So I know this is real. And it's because God loves us and has mercy on us. Because if he gives us over to our own desires, we're going to destroy ourselves. So let's be sensitive to his correction in this area. So we're in 2 Samuel 12. Are you guys with me? Okay, I got to get there here. 2 Samuel 12. We're going to read verse 7 uh, through 14. Then Nathan said to David, You are that man. He had just told the parable of the... Uh, of the rich man and the poor man and the rich man stealing the poor man's sheep. It was a parable to sort of set David up. David said, I'm furious. He said, as sure as assuredly as the Lord lives, about any man who do such a thing deserves to die. Isn't that funny? So he's totally self-righteous. You know what I mean? He's like, oh, man, the, the, the rich man that took the poor man's sheep, he needs to die. Um, he must repay four lambs to the poor man for the one he stole and for not having pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are that man. The Lord, the God of Israel, says, I anointed you king of Israel and saved you from the power of Saul. I gave you your master's house and his wives and the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. And if that had not been enough, I would have given you much, much more. Are you seeing the heart of God here, you guys? He's like, I was going to lavish you, lavish you with my goodness. Why then have you despised the word of the Lord and done this horrible deed? For you've murdered Uriah the Hittite with the sword of the Ammonites and stolen his wife. From this time on, listen to this. Your family will live by the sword because you have despised me by taking Uriah's wife to be your own. couple things here. Number one, when we say yes to sexual sin, we're saying no to Jesus. We're saying no to Jesus. And this is the reality of it right here. God is calling it out. He's saying, when you did that, you despised me. You hated me. You didn't love me. You hated me and you loved your sin. You hated me and you loved adultery. You took it for yourself. You didn't inquire of me. He says it's an abomination. So he says, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick up. <clears throat> Why then have you despised the word? Okay, you murdered your eyes. From this time on, your family will live by the sword because you've despised me by taking your eyes wife to be on your own. Now, verse 11. This is what the Lord says. Because of what you've done, I will cause your own household to rebel against you. I will give your wives to another man before your very eyes and he will go to bed with them in public view. You did it secretly, but I'll make this happen to you openly in the sight of all Israel. Then David confessed to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, yes, but the Lord has forgiven you and you won't die for his sin. There's his compassion. Nevertheless, because you've shown utter contempt. Wow, that's strong language for the Lord. By doing this, your child will die. Are are you guys seeing this? Do you, see, do you think there's significant consequences here for, for adultery in David's case? Obviously, it was adultery and murder, but serious consequences. Number one, the sword's never going to depart from your family. Your own family's going to rebel against you. Third, your child's going to die. Very significant consequences. Of four, and of course, his child did die if you read a few passages longer. And, and I'm going to share a story about that, too, in a little bit. But it didn't stop there. We're not going to read all these, but I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to give to you guys what I believe are direct consequences of that one act of adultery on the life of David and his ancestors. It didn't stop there. His son Amnon raped his daughter Tamar. What is that? 
sexual sin. You see, when we engage in sexual sin, the enemy gets to decide how he's going to manifest it in our children. So you can be an internet porn guy and your children can manifest homosexuality. You know, when people say, well, I was born this way, well, they're true. It's true. They were. They inherited generational consequences for sexual sin. That's what you're seeing. That's why this sexual immorality is sweeping because as it goes down through the generations, it's just building and building momentum until it gets so dark that no one can even bear it. And then Jesus breaks in and comes because he can't hold himself back anymore. That's what's happening, beloved. So Amnon rapes Tamar. Then Absalom, the brother of Tamar, murders Amnon. Do you remember this? Again, direct consequences of David's sin. It doesn't stop there, though. Then Absalom was estranged from David and went into exile. When he returns, he wins over the people and he forces David into exile. And if you remember, this is the fulfillment of the prophecy. His advisors tell him, go and sleep with David's concubines. So he left back in the castle out in public so that the people know that you're never going to be reconciled with David and they're going to side with you. And he does that and fulfills this prophecy that Nathan spoke over David's life. So Absalom sleeps with David's concubines in a public way. Did you guys ever want, and then you remember this, um, there's this whole interaction and then the armies of Absalom come and they fight and David says, don't kill Absalom, but uh, Absalom gets killed in the battle and then David is totally bummed out by it. In fact, he's depressed and all the troops are coming back and, and uh, his advisor comes to him and says, uh, you need to snap out of this because you're looking like a freak right now. I'm paraphrasing, okay? You're looking like a freak right now. We just fought to restore your kingdom, and you're weeping over this son who is in rebellion to you. Anybody wonder why that was? I mean, obviously he was his son. I believe he had a revelation that this whole thing was the fruit of his own sin. I believe he had a revelation of the generational consequences of his sin and realized that his son had been killed as a direct result of his own sexual immorality. It's deep. It's deep, beloved. And it's, it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop there. How many feel like that would be enough, sexual, like enough consequences to get you to rethink sexual immorality? Okay? And, and this is here to be a warning to us in this generation. Don't go down this road. Don't go down this road. There's, there's severe consequences here because God's trying to send a message to his people in 2014 that there are real consequences that go beyond the little boundary of your own me, myself, and I universe. Solomon was warned not to take foreign wives who worshipped other gods, but he did it anyway. His sexual appetite consumed him as he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. How many can do the math and go, that's a lot of work? Okay? I mean, this guy indulged himself at such a level of just hedonistic you know, exploit, and yet he couldn't stay within the boundaries God had given him. He ended up marrying foreign wives, and beloved, it didn't end well with Solomon. He was dragged away to worship false gods because he married these women. Because when you connect spiritually in that place of intimacy, what they do influences you. And what you do influences them. That's why God was warning Israel as they were coming out of Egypt, don't intermarry. With these people who are worshiping false gods, it'll drag you into idolatry. Here we have one generation after David 
I believe Solomon's sexual immorality took him out. And I believe that's also a direct consequence. I mean, obviously, we've got to own our own sin. Amen? I can't blame my sin all on my ancestors. There's that tension there. But we can either set people up for success or failure based on our saying yes to God and walking in purity or giving ourselves over to sin and setting up the next generation to have to fight an even harder battle. Then what we have, it doesn't end there, I don't believe. Then every other king over Israel, you know, you you, you read the scriptures in Chronicles and Kings, you know, one king would follow the ways of the Lord and then the next generation they would engage in spiritual idolatry and adultery. I believe all that waffling back and forth between let's follow God, let's follow idols and demons is connected to that act of iniquity of him sleeping with, uh, with Bathsheba. I want to share uh, uh, another testimony with you guys connected to this just to make it real in our context. Um, we had an outreach we did called Big Camp. And basically the idea behind Big Camp is that we would share testimony, share the gospel. Believers would invite pre-believers. That's what we call them because we believe that they're on their way, that there's hope for them. So we call them pre-believers. You invite a pre-believer up, but uh, in this case, we had an elder of a church that we were in relationship with that invited another elder up because he knew that that other elder who was a worship leader at their church was engaged in Internet pornography. So he brought him up hoping that he could get some inner healing and deliverance. And he went through the whole thing and he got some prayer and there just didn't seem to be any breakthrough on it. And basically the issue was the elder couldn't see what was wrong with pornography. It was a private sin. It didn't impact anybody else. He didn't see the reason why he would have to give it up. That night, they were reading out of the Psalms. And the particular Psalm they were reading was the Psalm of David where David is lamenting this whole incident with Bathsheba and the death of his son. And they were just, he was troubled in his spirit as he read the scripture, just showing you the sovereignty of God. They called us up. It was like 10 o'clock at night. They're like, can you pray with us? We just feel like, you know, there's a demonic presence or we just feel troubled in our spirit. We can't get through this psalm. And uh, I just feel like we need prayer. So I went with another leader and we sat down with him. And I felt like the Lord said to me, he needs a revelation of the consequences of this sin. And I just asked him, are you open to God showing you? Because we went through the whole talk and he said, I don't, you know, I don't really see where it says in the scripture that I can't look at Internet porn. I'm like, yeah, okay, let's pray. (laughs) Hey, man, that's what we're dealing with sometimes. We need God to break in with this, man. And so I just said, we're going to, and he was a little bit, he was a little, he was struggling a little bit because I think he had a feeling that he was going to actually see something that he didn't want to see. And so we prayed and I just said, God, would you come and would you give him a revelation of exactly what the impact is? And I felt specifically to pray the impact of this pornography on his family. And we just sat there, man. Sometimes how many, how, how many know the best ministry is nobody's talking? Okay, don't you don't need to be talking and making stuff happen. Some of the best ministries just waiting on the Lord to come and do what only the Lord can do in a man's heart. And I just felt the weightiness of conviction come over that tent. We must have sat there for like 15 minutes. Nobody said a word. How many know that's an uncomfortable length of silence in the midst of something like that? And all of a sudden I see him start like shaking his head and then tears started coming down. It's like, I can't believe it. 
And we let him just kind of shake his head and just like let the Lord deal with him for another five minutes or so. And when it seemed like the right time, he said, what, did, what is God showing you? And he said, God is showing me my wife's four miscarriages over the last three years. Sounds a lot like what happened to David. Lost a child because of sexual immorality. Needless to say, he was ready to repent. Sometimes that's what it takes. And if you're in that place, or you're ministering to somebody in that place, and they're just struggling, saying no, a lot of times it's because we just don't have the full weight of the gravity of what's happening. We don't, that reality hasn't really landed in our hearts. And we need God to come and show us what the real consequences are for this stuff. Sexual sin releases spiritual darkness into the church as well. We live in a culture that tells us that what we do in the privacy of our own home is nobody else's business. But the Bible teaches us differently. If we're part of the body of Christ, what happens to one part affects the other parts. We're connected spiritually. How many have experienced that? You meet another believer and immediately you're just connected with that person. You're connected because the Spirit's inside of us and it quickens that heart connection with other people that are born-again, Spirit-filled believers. Okay? Well, in the same way, when there's darkness in part of the body, it affects the other parts. You can't tell me. How many would believe this statement if I said, well, somebody came up to you and goes, you know, I've got hand cancer, but I don't think it's going to affect me. It's, it's isolated to my hand. That's insanity. You can't have cancer in part of the body and think it's not going to affect the other parts of the body. It's the same way with sin in the body of Christ. That's why you can tell me it's none of your business. To, I'm not saying I'm going to blow through the doors of your privacy and boundaries and go, hey, brother, I'm here to be your accountability partner. Talk to me. You know, no, whoa, whoa, whoa. No, we want to get invited into that place. You know, God doesn't force himself through the door. He says, would you open the door and receive another brother to be in transparent relationship with so that we can talk about what's going on in the inside of us? But what's happening with you? If you think you're just going to go on in sexual sin and you're not going to have someone come up and challenge you, you're crazy. You're crazy. You know, and I hope you're not those, those kind of believers. When another brother's in sin, I mean, obviously, gracefully, prayerfully go to the brother, not in a wrong spirit, but in a right spirit of love and concern. That's what God's about here. He's coming to people and confronting sin because he loves us. Amen. He's not trying to mess with us and be like this cosmic prude, rule maker, don't have any fun. That is not God's heart at all. He loves you and he loves you so much. He's going to mess with you. Okay, and deal with your stuff. Okay, that's the heart of God. Uh, and, and the reference for that is out of 1 Corinthians 12, or 12, 12 to 28, where Paul talks about all the parts of the body and how we're connected. We're not going to read that for time's sake. That's why we need to be in relationship and be accountable to each other, because what you're doing affects me and affects the, the entire body of Christ. It's also the primary reason that Paul admonished uh, the Corinthian church to remove from fellowship a man that was in sexual sin with his stepmother. Do you remember this? He's exhorting the Corinthian church and he says, remove him from fellowship so that his sinful nature can be destroyed and he might be actually saved. But if you endorse and comfort him in that darkness, he's going to take that as an endorsement, stay in sin, and he'll perish eternally. 
So don't do them a favors. And, and I think we do that a lot of times in the American church. We've got a lot of human love and compassion for someone who's in sexual sin. I get that. But there are times, beloved, where we got to say, hey, brother, this has got to stop. This has to stop or it's going to kill you, you know, and, and, and allow the Holy Spirit to get real with people. Okay. Just want to check here to make sure we land. Okay, I think we're doing okay. So um, I would encourage you to read that story in 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 13. It's an awesome story about how true love is actually breaking fellowship and saying, hey, until you're ready to deal with this. And I think it's reserved for people who are resistant to repentance, you know, and their hearts are hard in a particular area. Uh, The other thing uh, I want to get to is that sexual sin has lasting spiritual consequences. Obviously, you've seen the the impact on yourself, your intimacy with God, your intimacy with your spouse or future spouse, uh, the effect it's got on on, uh, your family and other people that you're spiritually connected to. Uh, It affects the church, but it also has lasting spiritual consequences. When we form physical, emotional, and spiritual bonds with people outside of God's boundaries for covenant relationship, it's got lasting consequences. When we engage in intimacy that's otherwise reserved for covenant relationships, God does not suspend the laws of the universe so we can go have a good time. Okay? The laws of the universe around sexuality and covenant don't get suspended so that we can go sleep with who we want to sleep with and not have consequences. Okay, those laws are still in operation. So when you become one with your spouse in marriage, you guys remember that? The two will become one. When you become one with your spouse, it's designed to form this supernatural bond through which blessing and impartation of the strengths and the glory of God that you carry can pass to your wife. And so that the blessings and anointing and calling and gifts that your wife carries can be imparted to you. And together, you're able to more accurately reflect God's glory. That's the design. But when you engage in ungodly sexual activity, you also create permanent connections to the people that you're being intimate with. But those connections get used, they get perverted and twisted to transfer darkness between people. Spiritual darkness gets passed between people. So what was originally designed to be a conduit of God's blessing now becomes a conduit of curses and spiritual darkness and baggage. And when we come into the kingdom, the consequences of those permanent, those connections are designed to be permanent in covenant marriage. How many know that? Okay, so just because you're having a casual affair doesn't mean the spiritual laws don't apply. You're making permanent connections with these people that you've been intimate with, that you've opened up your spirit with, that you've connected with in a way that's reserved for covenant marriage. And when you get saved, those many of those consequences are still there. How many know there's you can be forgiven by the blood of the lamb and still have consequences that play themselves out in your life? I mean, many of you know that you've had colleagues or peers that gave their life to Jesus. Are they forgiven for all that crazy crap they did? Absolutely. Do they still have to maybe do a jail sentence? Yes. I've seen God, you know, remove those in some cases because he's trying to reveal his goodness. But in others, I've seen him have people walk out consequences. Why? So they don't go back there again. Because if we got delivered instantly from the consequences of all our sin when we came to Christ, guess what we would do? We'd go back. 
We would. That's how we are. So he does bring a measure of instant deliverance. How many got some instant deliverance and instant relief when you gave your life to Jesus? Okay. Did everything go away? No. He leaves some things there so that we can be trained and equipped on spiritual warfare and grow an understanding of how we actually open those doors before we knew Jesus. Go with me to 1 Corinthians 6, verse 15. Don't you realize that your bodies are actually parts of Christ? Should a man take his body, which is part of Christ, and join it to a prostitute? Never. And don't you realize that if a man joins himself to a prostitute, he becomes one with her? For the scriptures say the two are united into one, but the person who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. You've seen this. Did the laws get suspended because you thought it'd be good to have a good time with a prostitute? No, then you become one with her. You become connected to her, and not just connected to her, but connected to everyone she's connected with. Do you see where this goes? So too often, even in the body of Christ, we're coming to the marriage altar and we haven't dealt with all the consequences of all these different relationships and repented of these ungodly relationships and asked the Lord to break these ungodly connections that we've made as a consequence of our sin. And so you've got two people at the altar, but in the spirit realm, there's thousands that are standing behind them that are all connected to them, that are open demonic transfer stations. And you wonder why those marriages get totally ripped in half, like in the first year or first couple years. This is a real issue. And I want to tell you how it happened for me. I was driving. I had just met my wife. We were engaged to be married. She had gone to an inner healing and deliverance ministry. And they had talked to her about these ungodly connections to people that she had slept with and been sexually intimate with in the past. And they had led her through a process of repenting for these and asking God to break these and, you know, receiving some inner healing around those issues. And as she did, the Holy Spirit fell on me, you guys. I didn't have time to have theological objections to what she was saying. The Holy Spirit fell on me so hard. I was driving between Minneapolis and Fargo that I had to pull over and I began to see a PowerPoint presentation of every single person that I had had intimacy with my whole life from age 16 to 33, one after the other. Literally like a spiritual PowerPoint present to people that I had totally forgotten about. How many know that's impossible? It's impossible when you have hundreds of partners to remember the faces and names of all them unless the Holy Spirit brings it up. And one after the other, I just kept agreeing with God. I repent. God, forgive me for that. Would you break the connection between me and that person? And I got I felt like I got saved all over again. It was that level of inner healing and deliverance. How many know how many want to be saved again? Man, I I, I need to get saved like every day. It's, it's intense and awesome. But I, I want to say to you, that would be a very good exercise if you've not done that yet, would be to seek the Lord for who you still have ungodly connections with and just simply acknowledge that you did something that was outside of God's bounds. Repent and ask him to break any ungodly connection between you and that person. Do it, beloved. You're going to get free. Okay. Sexual sin destroys your witness and undermines your spiritual authority. Sexual sin destroys your witness and undermines your spiritual authority. If you profess the name of Jesus and continue to live in sexual sin, you're compromising your witness to the world. If we act just like them, 
then we have no authority to call them out of darkness. How could I possibly call someone out of a homosexual lifestyle if I'm watching internet pornography? Doesn't that strike you as totally impossible spiritually? It does to me, and it's what I call God's anti-hypocrisy principle. Okay, we need to get to a place where we've got, I'm not saying you've got to be in a place of perfection before you can ever share your testimony or share the gospel, but we should be, you know, setting our hearts to, 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 to close the gap between the reality of our life and what Jesus has done for us. Okay, we want to close that gap. That's what sanctification is all about. And as we do that, we grow in intimacy. We grow in authority. Now, when I'm walking in sexual purity, I have authority to stand before you and preach this message, not because I'm self-righteous, but because I've submitted to this process and now have authority to preach to you on this because the Lord has empowered me to walk in victory. And I'm telling you, it's all by his grace. I, I, I get that. I understand that. But we've got to partner in that process. We can either resist it or we can partner with it. When we profess Christ with our mouths but deny Him by our lifestyle, particularly in the area of sexual sin, we're nailing Jesus to the cross again and holding Him up to public shame. That's out of Hebrews 6.6. 6. We can actually cause weaker believers who look up to us or pre-believers who are looking to us to see whether Jesus is real to fall away from the faith or reject the faith because of our sin. This is, the, this is why God's like so on this thing, you guys is the world is tired of seeing Christians who profess Jesus with their mouth and deny Him by their lifestyle. When the Holy Spirit is available to us to have victory in this area, He wants to raise up testimonies, not testimonies of church leaders. I mean, how many are tired of like church leaders falling because of sexual sin? I, I, I'm over it, and I can't imagine how God feels about it. And that happens when, when, they, when they stop living in transparency and aren't being true to the heart of God on this issue. I mean, that just didn't start in one moment. That was a gradual process of them entering into compromise with darkness. I'm reminded of the admonishment in Matthew 18, 6 through 9. I'm going to read it to you. I, I've got a question here. And how much worse is it, not only for church leaders who fall, but for church leaders now who are actually approving and sanctioning sin? Can you imagine What's in store for leaders right now in the American church who are saying it's you can continue to walk in active, open homosexuality. It's not a problem. Jesus loves you. And the truth is, Jesus does love them, but he loves them enough to call them out of that sin and to give them the power to actually do it. But can you imagine what message it sends to the GLBT community when, you know, there's there's tons of churches in our city that are saying you can continue in this lifestyle, even though the scriptures say that they're set for eternal destruction. Oh my goodness, there's got to be a special place in the lake of fire for leaders who compromise and actually cause little ones to stumble because of that compromise. Matthew 18.6 says it this way, but if you cause one of these little ones who trust in me to fall into sin, it'd be better for you to have a large millstone tied around your neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. What sorrow awaits the world because it tempts people to sin. Temptations are inevitable, but what sorrow awaits the person who does the tempting? 
Listen to this, beloved. Verse 8. So if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better to enter eternal life with only one hand or one foot than to be thrown into eternal fire with both of your hands and feet. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better to enter eternal life with only one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the the fire of hell. Many don't treat sexual sin seriously. But when you study the word of God, I don't know how you could conclude that God is not serious about sexual sin. I'm going to finish up with this and then I just want to pray and we're going to pick up next week and talk about why. Why is it that we struggle so much with this? Why don't we stop sinning and how can we practically win the war against this temptation and the and the spirit of the age? Sexual sin has physical consequences, not just spiritual and emotional and generational, but it's got physical consequences. As of 2008, the CDC, that's the Center for Disease Control, estimates 110 million cases of sexually transmitted diseases in the United States. Do you guys realize that for adults over the age of 18, that means one out of three adults in our nation has a sexually transmitted disease? Wow, that sounds like some bad odds if you're playing Russian roulette. If you have more than three partners, you're going to get a hit. I would say that's the fruit of a culture that's given itself over to sexual immorality. Somebody wake up, please, somebody. Please, let's wake up. Every year there's 20 million new cases of STDs in the U.S. and 50% of those are young people between the ages of 15 to 24. STDs cost $16 billion to treat annually. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are, you are a loving good father who wants good things for us you want us to be able to you say at at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore lord would you release revelation to us that doing it your way actually releases more pleasure that the enemy has brought us all these counterfeits he wants us to bite on all these counterfeits but there's something better for us to wait and do it your way god i thank you for the spouses of all these men who are being the beneficiaries of the message that you're releasing today, that you're actually preparing these men to walk in holiness and purity, to be shining examples in a dark age. How much brighter the light shines when the darkness increases, God. Would you release grace upon their hearts that this wouldn't just be a bunch of information, but it would be revelation that would strike their hearts, God, that you would come to them even now in dreams and in visions and personal conviction that you would bring things up in their hearts, Lord, that you would set them free from the bondages of generational darkness that have been represented in their family lines. I'm asking God that you would come and write upon their foreheads holy and set apart to the Lord. Release your grace and your love and your mercy in correction and in conviction, and in repentance, and in freedom. I'm asking and declaring freedom over these men. And I ask, Lord, that you just continue to minister to them between this week and next week, and that you would come in power next week and set many free. In Jesus' name, amen. We talked about the warnings in uh, that, that there's a time at the end times out of First Timothy and Second Timothy where if if... 
Jesus didn't hasten the time everyone would be destroyed, that many people are going to be deceived in the last days. And when we live in a culture that has so many messages that say, it's totally okay for you to engage in sexual sin. In fact, we, we promote it as a culture. We embrace it and elevate it as a culture. We need to be really aware of what God's heart is on this. Amen? Because when we stand before the throne, it's not going to be, you know, the, the publisher of Time magazine is not going to be on the throne. It's not going to be our mom or dad. It's not going to be our brother or sister. It's going to be the Lord. And he's going to uh, snap the plumb line of his word against our hearts in that moment. Um, so we talked about God's design for sexuality, um, that he created male and female in his image. And we talked about how when the two, his design for covenant is that when two become one, it's for the sharing of uh, godly qualities and characteristics and the passing back and forth of blessing uh, between husband and wife. Um, and that is, that's his design is that, that husband and wife could experience intimacy uh, and, and perichoresis. Do you guys remember that term from last week? That mutual indwelling, that deep, deep intimacy. And so when we do uh, physical and emotional and spiritual intimacy, it's designed to be a blessing from God. We talked about God loving sex. God is the author of sex. He's totally in favor of it. He's like a huge fan of it. It was his idea. Okay, but he wants us to do it in the context of the safety of covenant and commitment and real intimacy. When we do it outside of that, it releases darkness into our lives. And that's why he wants us to do it his way. <clears throat> we talked about the enemy um, perverting that original design and, you know, proliferating sexuality all throughout our culture. And, you know, it's everywhere, right? I mean, it's, it's in the grocery store, it's on the internet, it's like everywhere you look, billboards, you can't escape it if you're in this culture because he knows that if he can get us outside of God's design for it, it'll actually have the effect of breaking intimacy with God and a bunch of other negative effects. And I'm just going to go through them very quickly this morning. Uh, last week we talked about why sexual purity matters. The first reason is it's got eternal consequences, right? I mean, he says in the scriptures that those who engage in these things are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. So this is one that we've got to get victory in. This is one that Jesus is saying, this is a, a deal breaker. This is, this is something that I really want you to get. And so he's, that's why he wants to teach us and help us to come out of this. And Paul in Ephesians 5 says, don't be fooled by those who try and excuse these sins. So we know that there's going to be a huge wave of people who try and kind of say, hey, it's all right, don't worry, God's okay with you being homosexual right now, or God's okay with you divorcing your wife, or God's okay with you watching internet porn. We've got to come back to the Word and go, is this really, is this really the heart of God? Um, the other thing uh, that it does is sexual sin destroys intimacy with God. you remember us talking about this? That's why he hates it. He hates it because it breaks fellowship with him. Okay? That's a really huge reason to not engage in it. It also destroys intimacy with your spouse. You guys remember I told you a couple of stories of how God made this real for me. You know, what we let into our... That's why he says to guard... We're going to talk about that a little bit later today, why we should guard our hearts. Um, sexual sin. And it's not just because many of you guys are not married yet. It also can inhibit you from being introduced to the spouse that God has for you. Because he wants you walking in sexual freedom before he brings you together with your spouse. Because getting married is not going to solve your sexual sin problem. Okay, It doesn't go away. Just because you get married and you're having sex. 
Okay, you still have to deal with those root issues before. So it's a real inhibitor of God being able to bring you together with the spouse he does want you to have. The other thing we talked about last week is that sexual sin releases spiritual darkness into your family. Do you remember this? There's generational consequences for sexual sin. And we went into the scriptures about that. It also releases spiritual darkness into the church. Um, Sexual sin also has lasting consequences. We talked about when you're joined together with someone, um, God does not suspend the, the rules of the universe, the spiritual principles of the universe, so that you can go have a good time. When you come together with another person, you consummate that relationship as if you were married. In other words, you have sex, which is in covenant marriage, that's the consummating event. In, Jewish, in the Jewish tradition, you know, the, the final, they did like a, you know, multi-day fest, you know, party for the wedding. And then the last event, literally, I mean, no pressure here or anything, but the, the bride and the groom would go off and they would have, they would have sex. And then the parents would come out with a sheet that's got the blood on it, um, that the hymen has been broke, you know, that the hymen has been broken. This woman was a, a virgin. That's what that confirms. And then the marriage is consummated when, you know, in that sexual union. So, this is a this is a big deal. That's what it's supposed to be about. And uh, we talked about in uh, in uh, I think it was First uh, Corinthians twelve twelve through twenty eight how they say God said don't join yourself to a prostitute because then you become one with her. So there's this sense that you're forming permanent bonds when you're engaging in sexual activity with other people. These are designed to be permanent bonds in covenant marriage, but when they're not. There's still permanent bonds, and those things need to be addressed before the Lord. We're going to talk about that as well. Um, so it's got lasting spiritual consequences. The other thing we talked about last week was that sexual sin destroys your witness and undermines your spiritual authority. How many know that when we do the things that the world does, it doesn't exactly make the kingdom of God attractive? Okay, when we're doing, you know, James, the book of James says, if you're friends with the world, it makes you an enemy of God. And he goes so far as to call people adulterers who are friends with the world. Well, what does that mean? It means, are you doing the things that the world is doing? And sexual sin is a big indulgence of the world. So that's this is one of the ways that we can actually look different by the power of the Holy Spirit is that we would actually walk in purity. You know, when a coworker makes a comment about a woman, we can say, hey, man, that's the way I used to be. But God set me free from that. You know, I mean, that's a powerful testimony of the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit and what Christ has done in our lives. But it's very difficult for us. How can we call someone out of homosexuality, for example, if we're watching Internet porn? I mean, do you see this? I mean, it's, it's what we call God's anti-hypocrisy principle. You can't, you can't be engaged in it yourself and then try and call others out. So your spiritual authority and your ability to call people to surrender to Christ is directly connected to how we're walking in this. Amen? Okay. Um, the other thing, uh, the, and the last one uh, I want to remind you guys of is that sexual sin has physical consequences. It's got real physical consequences. Um, and I talked about last week uh, a CDC report in 2008 that says 100, there's 110 million cases of sexually transmitted diseases in the United States. That's basically one out of three people is, is a carrier of an STD. I would say that's the fruit of a culture that's engaged in sexual immorality. 
And so it's got real consequences. And many of you have, you know, maybe experienced that. I know I did. You know, God healed me of, of an STD even before I got saved. But he reminded me after I got saved. That was me. That was my grace. So there is healing and there is restoration. Um, but it's, it's incredible the amount of physical consequences. There's, every year there's 20 million new cases of STDs in the United States. And about 50% of those are young people between the ages of 15 to 24. They cost about $16 billion to treat annually. So a massive cost to our culture that's a direct consequence of walking in sexual darkness. So, I want to, that was all recap, man. I hope you guys are still hanging on. I know that was a lot of stuff. I'd encourage you to go back and hear kind of the biblical uh, pieces of that and the testimonies uh, that we used to build that foundation. Now we're going to move on and talk about um, about why we don't stop sinning in this area. Um, the Word of God, if the Word of God is clear that sexual sin is going to destroy us, then why do we do it? And why do we have so many leaders and believers trapped in sexual sin? Would you guys like to know that? I mean, that seems like a great question to ask. Um, I have been asking it, and I feel like the Holy Spirit is is bringing some answers. And the first reason is, I'm going to give you guys probably seven or eight reasons, and then we're going to get into talking about how to practically walk in sexual purity. How can we partner with the Holy Spirit to actually have victory in this area? <clears throat> the first reason is we don't understand the consequences of sexual sin. We, we haven't connected the dots. And what I'm hoping is that what happened last week will help you enter into that reality. I hope after you went through the ones that did go through the teaching last week, you're not wondering what the consequences of sexual sin are. They are many and severe. Okay, that's one reason that people don't stop, though. Um, so, and and we need that revelation. Um, the second reason we don't so understanding that there are consequences is a huge part of entering into freedom. Because if you don't think there's any consequences, then you're just like, well, why not? You know, there's nothing. It's not going to hurt me. I'm saved by grace, you know, which is a very wrong understanding of grace. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. The second reason that we don't stop uh, sinning in this area and have victory in this area is that we don't really know what sexual immorality is. We don't really know what sexual immorality is. That's kind of a vague term. That leaves a lot of wiggle room. How many know what wiggle room is? <laughs> Okay, areas where maybe the scripture doesn't explicitly say something. I think it does say a lot about sexual sin. Um, but I want to tell you guys from my own personal testimony, I, I read through the whole scripture, I read through the whole Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and I didn't see anywhere in there where it said that I couldn't have sex with people that I wanted to have sex with, which just goes to show you that you hear what you want to hear <laughs> and you read what you want to read. We have such a powerful self-deception mechanism. Now, now, the good news is eventually the Holy Spirit broke in on me and said, you see that? You see that? You see that? I'm talking to you, and I'm talking about you walking in sexual immorality. You need to turn to me. And he gave me grace to do that. But I'm telling you that I don't think I'm unlike many believers, many of whom aren't even in the Scriptures that much. And so you wonder why they're walking in a compromised lifestyle and they have no problem with it. Because they have it, they really don't want to know the truth. And that's the other thing I want to say. In this area, you know, uh, Jesus used this phrase. He said, those with ears to hear, 
Listen to what the Spirit is saying. And he talked about another group of people that were going to show up in the last days. He said those with itching ears. You guys know the difference between the two. He's talking about two types of people. The ones with itching ears hear what they want to hear. And they will literally go to teachers who will affirm them in compromised lifestyles um, because they want to indulge their flesh. They want a gospel that caters to their flesh. But there's another group that he identifies and he challenges people with. And he says, those with ears to hear. Ears to hear means you want the truth regardless of the cost to you personally or the cost to your flesh. Okay? And so I'm going to just pray. How many want ears to hear, man? Really, just be real, man. Okay? All right. We're going to ask him for that right now. Father, would you give us grace? Give us ears to hear and help dismantle the defense mechanisms around our heart as we dig into your word. Give us ears to hear what you are saying in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Hosea 4.6 says it this way. My people are being destroyed because they don't know me. Or I like the New King James, which says it this way. My people perish for lack of knowledge. How many have heard that before? Okay. So we've got people in the body of Christ that are perishing because they don't understand the heart of God in this area. And we need to increase our knowledge of his heart in this area. I don't want you to perish for lack of knowledge. So I want to be really clear about what sexual immorality is. The first thing it is, and I'm just going to bust it down and break it down for you guys. We're not going to go to every scripture, but I'd encourage you to write these scriptures down and to go and study this out in the word. We are also going to send the notes to uh, to Andy and so that he can get the notes to you guys if you want them. Um, this sexual immorality, sex with animals is sexual immorality. Okay, sex with animals is sexual immorality. Leviticus 19.29 just says it straight out. Sex with family members is sexual immorality. Leviticus 18.6-18. Sex with children is sexual immorality. And I, uh, the scripture I cited for that, not only the Leviticus 18 passage, but also Matthew 18.6, where Jesus says, if you cause one of these little ones to stumble, it would be better for you to tie a millstone around your neck and fall into the bottom of your sea. Fall into the bottom of the sea. And I want to say something about that because the enemy is after children. And he wants to use willing adults to partner with him. He wants to destroy children either through sexual abuse or them being exposed to Internet pornography. I can't tell you how many people we've done inner healing and deliverance with that the root of their sexual issues comes from their childhood. An encounter with neighborhood kids, an encounter with an adult that was molesting or touching them in an inappropriate way or a family member that was uh, you know, engaging in sexual contact with them in an inappropriate way or some adult's pornography that they found when they were in that age, and it all of a sudden opened up this gateway to darkness to come in. So this is very serious. The enemy does not, he's no respecter of persons either. He will come after your children. And, he, and many of you probably have stories of how he came after you, usually through someone else. So sex with children is sexual immorality in the eyes of God. Sex outside of marriage also known as fornication, is sexual immorality. Very clear in Scripture. Galatians 5.19, 1 Corinthians 7.2, and 1 Corinthians 7.36. Sex with someone else's spouse, uh, is a, also called adultery, is sexual immorality. 
Um, that's Leviticus 18.20, Exodus 20.14, and Matthew 5.27. By the way, adultery covers sex with anybody, actually. Because if you're having sex with a woman and she's not your wife, she's meant for another man, that's adultery. Amen? Okay, so, you know, we got, we got you coming and going there. Um, just kind of hedge you in. Um, prostitution is sexual immorality. Leviticus 19.29, Deuteronomy 20.17, Proverbs 23.27, 1 Corinthians 6.15-16, and I could add pornography to that. It wasn't invented at the time, you know, it, hadn't, it wasn't proliferated in the same, uh, at the same level it is in our culture uh, back in biblical times, but certainly it was uh, anticipated and is sexual immorality. Homosexuality is sexual immorality. In the eyes of God, Leviticus 18.22, 1 Corinthians 6.9, and Romans 1.27. Now, um, so, everybody clear on those items, alright? Uh, there's another group, and I'll talk, masturbation, oral sex, and anal sex. They're not explicitly listed in Scripture, so I'm not going to teach on them, um, but I think I can make a really solid case um, that all those things obviously are not okay outside of mar- a marriage covenant, and I will give you my personal opinion on them if you come up and talk to me after the teaching, and I'll tell you why I think what I do. Some of it's personal revelation, some of it's inferred from Scripture, but I think there's some. Uh, I, I do believe uh, that God that He has an opinion on those things, and I'll share it with you if you'd like to come up and ask me about that uh, after the teaching. Matthew 20 or Matthew 5 go there with me Matthew 5 Matthew 5 Now we've got all these areas that the Lord clearly says hey these are outside of the bounds of how I want you to to engage in the gift and the joy of sex I want you to do it in covenant marriage but Jesus then so that's all in the Levitical law and it shows up again in many of the New Testament passages But in Matthew 5, Jesus takes it a step further, and and we want to catch that here, starting in verse 27. Jesus says, You've heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery, but I say anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That's intense. So what he's really saying is, the law used to be based on outward behavior. What I am actually after is what's going on on the inside of your heart. And, and the good news is, is that Jesus gives us power to have victory. We're going to talk about some of the practical tools about how we can have victory in our inner heart life. But what he's basically saying is this is not just about your outward, you know, how you outwardly manifest the sin of the heart. He's saying, I'm after the heart issues. If you're doing any of these things in your thought life, in your heart life, you're doing them. And so I want to teach you how to have victory by the grace of God, you know, in your thought life, in your heart life, as well as in the outward manifestations of how you engage in the gift of sex God's way. Um, So he's not just after the acts, but the condition of our, our thought life and our heart life. Then he says this in verse 29, as if, I mean, I don't know how he could emphasize the point any in any stronger way. He says, so if your eye... Even your good eye causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. That, that's intense, man. Um, it's better for you to lose one part of your body 
than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. How many would say this is a significant issue? Okay, come on, somebody. This is intense, but it's real. He'd rather shock you. I feel like the Lord wants to shock us now rather than shock us when we stand before him on the day of the Lord. Amen. How many would prefer the shock now rather than on the day of the Lord? I would. Okay, let's just come into agreement with what he's saying. Um, Reason number three, and I think one of the reasons he's so strong, you guys, is he understands the battle in our own mind. He understands the temptation for us to push away the knowledge of the truth. He understands the battle in our own mind to justify the things that we want to do and and indulge our flesh in. He gets it. So he's using very strong language so that we're not mistaken. He doesn't want us to perish for lack of knowledge. So reason number two is we don't understand what sexual immorality is. Hopefully you have some real clarity on that right now. Reason number three that we don't break agreement with sexual sin is that we don't want to stop. I mean, I, you know, it's real simple. We just don't want to stop. You know, we love our sin more than we love the Lord. I mean, that's really what it comes down to, beloved. I mean, that's one reason it can be. It's not always the reason. Often, um, and so um, we don't want to let go of our sin. And without agreement in your will, it's not going to happen. You can't say, God changed me, and yet there's no agreement in your will to actually submit to what he's asking you to walk out to get free. Amen? How many know that sanctification is a partnership between the Holy Spirit and our will? Okay? And as we say yes, and we surrender our will, then he releases grace for us to walk out of it. But he's looking for that agreement in our will. He won't make us sexually pure against our will. If you love your internet porn, the consequence is you get your internet porn. You know, and so we need to realize that there's a there's a real thing that needs to happen on the inside of us. Um, But I believe God will help anyone who has a genuine interest in getting free. If you have a genuine interest in getting free, he's going to he's going to help you go to John three with me, guys. Go to John three, John three, verse 17. Listen to this. It says God sent his son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. That's so good because it makes you realize like God is not in the business of condemning us and beating us up. That is not his heart. That is not the spirit of the Lord. He wants to save us and set us free. He's not here to judge us for our sexual sin. He's here to go, hey, you need to turn from this stuff. Turn to me. I'm going to give you power to walk out of it. And you're going to be free because you're my sons. And I want you to be free. So he starts with that, and then, um, and then he goes, there's no judgment against anyone who believes in him, but anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only Son. Verse 19, and the judgment is based on this fact. God's light came into the world, but people love the darkness more than the light, for their actions were evil. All who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near it for fear their sins will be exposed. But those who do what is right come to the light so others can see that they are doing what God wants. Do you see this? Okay, there's a real group of people that's saying, you know, I see the light, but I, I want to choose. I want to stay away from the light and continue to choose darkness. Crazy, but true. So one of the reasons that we don't break agreement with sexual sin is that we don't want to stop. Another reason, reason number four, that we don't break agreement and get freedom from sexual sin is that we lack self-control. We lack discipline. Um, Now, 
the good news is, is that self-control and discipline is a fruit of the Spirit. Amen? This isn't something that you muster up. We're not talking about you white-knuckling it and, like, trying harder. How many know that doesn't work? Okay? Okay, just go ahead and turn to your neighbor and go, white-knuckling it does not work. <laughs> turn, to your, turn to the other neighbor and go, trying harder does not work. Turn back to your other neighbor and go, we need God. <laughs> All right. Set us free from human effort, Lord. But here's a real reality, beloved. And this is, here's a real reality. And, and I want to share this with you because this is a, one reason that we tend to, in those moments of temptation, we're not able to come into agreement with God and choose Jesus in the moment of temptation. One of the reasons we're not able to is that um, we haven't trained ourselves to say no to the flesh. We haven't trained ourselves. How many know you have to actually train yourself to say no to your flesh? There's a battle between the spirit and the flesh that's going on all the time. And if you're continually feeding the flesh, guess what gets stronger? The flesh. If you're feeding the spirit, the spirit gets stronger. So the little choices that you make, I'm talking about thousands of little choices, will either prepare you to say no to temptation or they'll put you in a position of compromise where when the temptation comes, you haven't been trying to resist the flesh and it overwhelms you. Okay? So we can actually cooperate in training. In fact, the Word of God teaches us, this is Romans thirteen fourteen says, make no provision for the flesh. How many know that we, may, we tend to make provision for the flesh? Like, well, let me just create a little space for my little pet sin to just kind of keep going. And guess what? Before you know it, a whole floodgate opens up. And so we need to not make provision for the flesh. When Jesus encountered people with known sin, and you guys are going to remember the famous one, the woman caught in the act of adultery. Remember, the Pharisees dragged her out of literally in the middle of her engage, being engaged in adultery with, uh, with a man. And of course, you know, they were highlighting her sin and trying to trap Jesus. And you guys remember this scene, and of course, they all walk away because guess what? They were all in sexual sin of some kind or another. Isn't that amazing? You know, there you have the anti-hypocrisy principle operating. But Jesus turns to the woman and says something very interesting. Where are your accusers? She says, they're not here, Lord. Then, then I don't accuse you. Then, then I forgive you, basically, is what he said. But then he said, go and sin no more. Didn't he? Basically, he said, go and don't make provision for your flesh in this area. Now that you know better, you experience like the gravity of this sin. So he says, go and sin no more. Clearly, if he commands us to stop sinning, then he's going to give us provision of grace to resist temptation and have victory over sin. Isn't that right? I mean, God's not trying to set us up to fail. If he says don't sin, then there's a provision of grace that we need to access that will empower us to actually walk that out. And I've found that that's true. Go to 1 Corinthians 10 with me. 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians 10.13, he says, The temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. And God is faithful. He'll not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, He'll show you a way out so that you can endure. Isn't that true? It is true. It is true. We need to access that grace in the midst of temptation. 
And and I want to say this, you know, um, let's see, where do I have? Okay. Go to Galatians 5 with me. Galatians 5. We've got two or three passages in Galatians I want to hit on here. Galatians 5, verse 19. When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. This is the, the, if you follow the desires of your flesh would be another way of saying this. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures. There's a big three right there. <laughs> idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. Let me tell you again, as I have before, this is Paul repeating this so that they get it, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. So is this an important issue, beloved? Yes, this is an important issue. Verse 22, but the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives, love, Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There it is. There's discipline and self-control. There's no law against these things. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to His cross and crucified them there. Go to Galatians 6, 8 with me. It says, For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. This is New King James Version. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. Galatians 6.8. I'm going to read it from NLT 2. Those who live only to satisfy their own sinful nature will harvest decay and death from that sinful nature. But those who live to please the Spirit will harvest everlasting life from the Spirit. Okay. So here's the deal. The way that you win or lose on this thing, you guys, is generally speaking, although we're going to talk about this, it's not coming up to an altar call and getting like, you know, a massive deliverance and all of a sudden you never suffer from sexual temptation again. Okay? It it generally does not happen that way. Okay? Sometimes God will bring immediate deliverance for strongholds in our lives. Isn't that awesome when He does that? It's like, wow, I just got set free and literally you can feel like the temptation does not even come close to your heart anymore. Um, maybe some of you experienced that with the, some of the addictions that you've come out of already. You just don't even have the desire for meth or alcohol or any of that junk anymore because God just did a deliverance on you. That happened to me when I first came into the kingdom. I was immediately delivered from alcohol and marijuana and profanity. I mean, it was just gone. And then there's the longer process of character formation called sanctification that's over thousands of little decisions that you make where God looks at your heart and how you respond to His grace and says, as you begin to agree with me in those little things, you know, the Proverbs tell us it's the little foxes that destroy the vineyard. (laughs) How many know about little foxes? You know, it's those little decisions that you make in the privacy of your own heart that God is examining your heart and saying, will you agree with me on these little, seemingly little things that over a thousand decisions actually will determine the course of your life? Okay, that's, that's what we're talking about here. So when you're in the moment, you know, I love, there are tons of guys that like to ask for grace for sexual immorality after it happens. Anybody ever done that? Oh, God, forgive me. Oh, God, have mercy. I mean, we love grace after we indulge in sexual sin. But I think what the Lord is challenging us with is He's saying, my grace is actually available in temptation. 
I would much rather have you cry out to me in the midst of temptation. And I'm going to tell you what that looks like for me, you guys. I mean, for me, it's like I remember one time when I was in a, 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 a Target and God had been dealing with me on sexual purity over probably two or three years up to this point. I was walking in a measure of it. I had a measure of understanding about what his heart was. And I was in this Target store and it was like every single woman who walked by me, you know, her breasts were hanging out. She, I mean, it was like, oh God, are you kidding? Like she had no, they had no clothes on. They're just one after the other in front of me. And every time they walk in front of me, I'm like taking thoughts captive. I'm like saying, Jesus help me. And then finally I just got exasperated. Anybody ever get exasperated with like the battle in your thought life, in your heart life? And I'm like, God, like, do I really need to like live this way for the rest of my life? Like, why is this so hard? Why don't you just take this? Anybody ever said, why don't you just take this away from me, God? Am I talking to the right group here? Okay. I mean, I've cried out for that. And he said, you know what? I want to see if you really love me. And this is a really good way. A rubber meets the road way. That's what his response to me was in Target. And I was like, oh, my goodness. That's a really good way to find out if we really love somebody, isn't it? To keep allowing temptation and yet over and over and over again we say, Jesus, I choose you. I choose you right now instead of engaging and letting that, that movie start playing in my head. I choose you right now. Help me. Give me grace. And it comes. Because the bottom line is, beloved, you guys have heard Paul talk about this. He opens up a lot of his epistles. I'm a slave to Jesus Christ. You remember him saying that? You're, you're going to be a slave to something. <laughs> You're going to be a slave to sin or you're going to be a slave to Christ. That's, there's, there's no other options. You know, and I don't know about you, but, but Jesus is a much better master than sin. Because sin is going to enslave you and destroy you. And so you might see like, wow, this is really hard. I've got to keep asking for help. Yes, you do. You've got to be a slave of righteousness, man. And it's worth it. It's worth it. We'll talk about that a little bit more. Um, so reason number four, uh, just to recap, is that we lack discipline and we need to ask God for the grace to do that and make lots of really good decisions in a row over a long period of time. And I found when I do that, there have been times where the Lord's come to me and he said, I'm going to bring deliverance to you. You know, when I was in the world, um, I battled with adultery. That was a, a huge sin for me. I slept with anybody. It didn't matter if they were married. didn't matter if they had a boyfriend didn't matter. So I operated in a lot of darkness, crossing boundaries in that area. And so when I came into the kingdom, how many know that Jesus does not give you instant deliverance from every single thing? He did not give me instant deliverance from that spirit of adultery. In fact, it was there and it seemed like it was constantly coming against me. And I believe the Lord allowed it to remain there to test me and to train my hands for war. How many know that when the Israelites went into the promised land, God didn't wipe out all the enemies. He actually left enemies in the land to help equip the next generation to know how to fight. And so God doesn't bring you instant deliverance from everything either because he wants to teach you his ways through the struggle and through the battle. So you begin to know his ways and begin to be equipped as a warrior so that this is way bigger than you guys. Okay, this is way bigger than your own personal sexual strongholds. This is about you getting equipped to be free so that you can help other men get free. Okay, that's what this is about, because there is an absolute, uh, you know, absence of understanding, even in the body of Christ, about these issues. So 
I, you know, after, I don't know, it was probably four or five years, and I'm going to tell you guys how severely this manifested, this battle was for me. I would be in, in di- dinner meetings with, you know, another couple and my wife, and all of a sudden the spirit of adultery would, like, attack me, and literally it got so bad I had to go in the other room and lay down on the floor and cry out to Jesus and say, I'm not leaving. I mean, in the middle of dinner, I'd go, excuse me, I'm going to go in the other room, I'll be right back. Go in the other room, and I'd cry out to Jesus for deliverance from that spirit, and eventually it would come, okay? And I don't believe I entered into sin. I just cried out. I'm telling you, that's the level that this battle is at. And after about two or three years of this, I was in a prayer meeting, and the Lord came to me and he said, your heart has been tested and approved. I'm bringing you deliverance from the spirit. And I literally felt it leave me and just started weeping, tears coming down my face. So did God want to set me free from that? Absolutely. Did he want to accomplish something in my character in the process of resisting evil and choosing Jesus? Totally. Totally. Reason number five that we don't break agreement with sexual sin is that we're wounded. We're wounded in normally in an area that affects our sexuality and its expression. Many times, and I've mentioned this before, um, our sexual immorality has roots in, in our early childhood or in the generations. Okay? If, if your parents, um, you know, if you had a dad who, you know, lusted after women or you had a dad who engaged in adultery, the enemy gets to choose how that's going to manifest in your life. It generally gets darker as it goes down the generations. That's how it works. Someone opens the door, the the enemy gets a foothold in your parents' generation, and then he comes hard at you, gets you to agree with sexual darkness, and it gets worse. You know, you go from like, you know, reading Victoria's Secret magazines to hardcore porn, And then your children end up in homosexuality and they say they're born that way. Well, to some extent, that's true. They were born in generational iniquity. And it's one of the reasons why generation after generation, beloved, it's getting darker sexually. (laughs) Okay? Because the enemy's got footholds and he keeps getting people to sign up again for him in the generations. So a lot of times you're inheriting a generational legacy of sexual immorality. So you're starting back from the finish from the starting block. Amen. You're starting set back because of darkness that's happened in the generations. Now, typically what happens is we add our own sin to the generational iniquity that's coming down our family line. And then it just gets worse. Do you see how this goes? Okay. Until someone says that's enough stands before God, takes responsibility for this, says, God, would you, would you cleanse me? Would you deliver me so that it, my children will not inherit this legacy? How many want to leave a, a legacy of sexual purity for your children and generational blessing? Okay? You have the opportunity to do that. So it has roots in early childhood or the generations. A lot of times it's rooted in sexual trauma, molestation or rape or an ungodly touching. Or things that happen with the neighbor kids. Um, They open the door towards a propensity for sexual immorality. Um, We need to, um, we need to seek God for healing and deliverance from this stuff. And that's really what the remedy is. That's the good news. Is that the gospel is powerful enough to break this stuff off of us. But we have to acknowledge it before the Lord and ask for His help. Um, So that's one piece. But one thing I see and I want to just challenge you guys not to do is, not to camp out on your woundedness. You know, I see a lot of people sort of camp out on their woundedness and go, well, my dad was this way, that's why I'm this way. 
and just sort of resign themselves to that. Don't make that mistake because the gospel is powerful enough to set us free. Reason number six that we don't break agreement with sexual darkness is that we don't know how to resist sexual temptation. We don't know how. How practically do we fight against this stuff that's coming at us? The battle, and I want to talk about this in a couple different stages, I believe that the battle begins with our eyes. Our eyes are gateways. How many know that? Your eyes are gateways into your spirit, into your heart. And what comes in your eyes uh, affects you. Men are sexually stimulated through our eyes. Is that not true? Okay? So that's a major gateway for, for pleasure that God's designed for us to have, looking at our wives and having intimacy with our wives, but he, the enemy wants to, you know, abscond that, hijack that, and cause us to engage in trying to get pleasure by looking at others. Go to Luke 11 with me. Luke 11. Luke 11, verse 34. Your eye is a lamp that provides light for your body. When your eye is good, your whole body is filled with light. But when it is bad, your body's filled with darkness. Okay? What that tells us is what we gaze at will impact what's going on on the inside of us. Okay? What we gaze at, what we allow through our eye gates will impact what's going on in our thought life and our heart life. Your eye is a lamp that provides light for your body. When your eye is good, your whole body is filled with light. But when it's bad, your body's filled with darkness. 1 John 2.16. Go there with me. 1 John 2.16. 1 John 2.16, I'm going to read out of New King James. I like the rendering of this. It says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. That tells us as our eyes can lust after things. They're connected to the experience of lust. When we look at things, we can derive sexual pleasure in ungodly ways as well as godly ways using our eye gates. What we let into our eye gates is significant. It determines whether the light of God will flood our hearts or whether spiritual darkness will flood our thought life and our hearts. That's why Job said in 31.1, you can go there if you'd like, Job 31.1, he said, I made a covenant with my eyes, a covenant with my eyes, not to look with lust at a young woman. Clearly, he was foreshadowing what Jesus was talking about when he said, don't, if you commit adultery in your heart, you've actually committed adultery. Okay, that battle starts with your eye gates and what you let in. Okay, so um, what I've found is that God will warn you, the Holy Spirit inside of you, as you begin to agree with God in walking in purity, God will warn you ahead of time if there's something coming visually that you need to guard your eyes against. I mean, I've, you know, it used to be that I, and sometimes it happens where you look and you see something and you know it's going in a wrong direction in your thought life. You can feel it coming. That's the moment to go, you know what? I choose you, Jesus. I, I reject that in the name of Jesus. Turn your eyes and keep on walking. Okay? And, and so keep your eye gates focused off of things that are going to cause you to stumble. Um, that's why Job, a man after God's own heart, made a covenant with his eyes. He understood the significance of letting images of women enter his mind or his thought life. Some say that a first looks fine, but not a second. Have you ever heard that before? It's okay if you look once, but not twice. I think that's just playing with fire, man. 
Um, I think we need to declare war on sexual sin and the Holy Spirit's going to let you know when danger is close by. You don't even have to go there. You know, the minute an image comes on my radar, either on the Internet or if I'm walking outside and it's summertime or whatever, even not summertime, it doesn't matter. I just feel like the Lord will say, don't, you know, he'll just let me know in my heart there's an issue coming and I'll just avoid it and keep walking. It's really easy to choose Jesus in that moment. Um, The battle continues, so it begins in our eye gate. And I would encourage you guys to ask God for a covenant with your eyes. You know, God, would you would you help guard my eyes and tell me when issues are going to come up so that I can choose you in the middle of that moment? The battle continues in our mind. Once sexual images enter our eye gates, they go to our mind and immediately the movies begin to play. Isn't that true? Okay. once they come in the eye gate, they go to your thought life and that's where the movies start to play. What? Okay, And the movies start playing and you're like, "Uh oh. If we don't stop our thoughts at that moment, we're opening up the door to danger at that moment. Okay, Um, because what happens if we don't stop our thought life, those those seeds will get planted in our mind and they'll begin to grow roots down into our heart and into our spirit. Okay, it starts, it comes through the eye gates, gets in the mind. The movie begins to play. We got to stop it then. Otherwise, it'll begin to grow roots and we'll go, well, maybe, maybe, you know, Maybe that's the woman that God wants for my wife. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, I mean, come on, guys. We're, we're crazy about this stuff. I mean, we got all kinds of crazy little storylines that will run in our head to make it okay to let that movie play and kind of entertain it and dance with it for a little bit. Go to 2 Corinthians 10. 2 Corinthians 10. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 4 and 5. We use God's mighty weapons not worldly weapons, to knock down the strongholds of human reasoning and to destroy false arguments. We destroy every proud obstacle that keeps people from knowing God. We capture their rebellious thoughts and teach them to obey Christ. Okay, that's New King James Version. What I love about that, Ephesians 6.17 tells us that the Word of God is the sword of the Spirit. The Word of God has power. How many know the Word of God is power? When you use it and you practice it, it has power over spiritual darkness. It's how we defeat the enemy. What this tells us is that you can train your thoughts to obey Jesus. You can train your thought life to obey Christ. And for me, as a practical, uh, you know, in a practical way, when something comes in my eye gates, and occasionally it does, um, I just go, I take that thought captive in Jesus' name before it even turns into a movie. How many know it's easier before it turns into a movie than after it turns into a movie? Okay, so when you feel it coming, you just, you just go, I take that thought captive in Jesus' name. And if it persists, I say it three times. If it persists, I say it ten times. But eventually it yields. You know, James tells us if you resist the devil, he'll leave you. Okay? And if you want to really get crazy, when he attacks you in that way, start praying for the purity of other men. Okay? I mean, put him on the run a little bit. I mean, that's revelation. You know, if you get attacked, you really want to put him on the run and say, every time you attack me sexually, I'm going to pray for the purity of other men. Okay? And put him on the defensive when he attacks you. Trust me, he's, he's, he's not going to keep doing it. Um, so, and it has the power when we use it to battle the fiery darts of the enemy. That's Ephesians 6.16. So how many know the enemy's got fiery darts? There's assignments against you. They want to plant thoughts in your head. 
and they can use the context. I mean, demons aren't idiots. They can see that there's a beautiful woman right there. Guess what kind of dart they're going to throw at you? Wow, that could be your wife. Wow, wouldn't it be great to be with her? I mean, you, you know, the movies just start rolling. Okay, that's the moment where you can say, I take that thought captive. And it actually works, man. I'm telling you that it works. That prayer of faith works. It doesn't have to be that exact phrase. Sometimes I'll just say, the Lord rebuke you. You know, I'll just say, the Lord rebuke you. Sometimes I'll just say, you know, Jesus, I choose you right now. I choose you. And I'll literally sometimes picture, I'm like, Jesus, I choose you. I need your holiness right now. And I just get this visual of this fireball from the throne room, like blasting my heart. And it's like there's no room for darkness in my heart. But literally, are are you guys seeing this? In these moments, you need to cry out for grace. And God will give it to you. In those moments, He'll give it to you. You guys, any of you guys seen the Matrix movie? I mean, it's a little bit old school, man. But it's a little bit old school. But there's this cool scene at the end of the movie. I'm not saying that the movie is totally orthodox, man. But it's got some cool pictures of the spiritual realm that it reveals, and it's pretty cool. We did a whole uh, gospel CD based on that movie. talked about taking the red pill or the blue pill. Taking the red pill is giving your life to Jesus. It's pretty cool. But at the end of it, um, there's a scene where the agents, uh, where the agents have these guns, and they're just like unloading these guns on Neo, who's the protagonist in the movie. And literally, he just holds out his hand like this, And the bullets come right up to his hand and stop, and then they drop to the ground. And I feel like that's a great picture of the reality of what's going on in the spirit realm when the demonic's trying to just unload on you, and you just go, I I just rebuke that in the name of Jesus. And those things just drop. They have no power over the Word of God. When we partner with God, there's nothing that can stop us. Nothing that can stop us. This taking your thoughts captive and choosing Jesus in the middle of sexual temptation is, is one of the most powerful, practical tools I've had for walking in purity. And I will give you guys this encouragement. As you're faithful to do this in the thousands of interactions and little skirmishes you're going to have around sexual purity, as you're faithful to do that, God releases more and more grace and temptation gets less and less. It really does. You know, you get, there's progressive sanctification and relief. I'm not walking around constantly in a battle for my sexual purity anymore. There was a season that I walked through, and I believe it was a proving ground, you know, as God was testing my heart, testing my love and allegiance for Him and giving me grace to walk in that. But I've come to a place in my walk, I'm not, it's not me, but because of God's grace, where there's a level of freedom that I'm not battling this constantly. You know, now it's like, you know, maybe once a week, twice a week, there might be a dart and it just gets dealt with and it's over with. How many want to be in that place? It's worth it. That's my exhortation, you guys. Fight through that season where you have to learn how to partner with God to win this battle. The other thing I want to say is that the battle is won or lost in our hearts. It starts with our eye gates. Then it goes into our thought life. We've got to take thoughts captive. If we don't do that... Ultimately, the goal of the enemy is to lay hold of our hearts and our spirits, okay, and get a stronghold established there. That's what his, that's what his goal is. He wants to blast you with enough fiery darts, see if he can get a couple to stick, grow roots down into your heart, and then get a stronghold through which he can destroy the rest of your life and relationships. That's how it works, you guys. Um, that's why Proverbs 4.23 says this, Guard your heart above all else 
for it determines the course of your life. This is it right here, beloved. Right here, your, your heart, your spirit is the battleground. Your soul is the battleground. We want to protect that. Go to Malachi 2. Malachi 2. That's the last book of the Old Testament. This is an exhortation in the context of sexual purity and covenant marriage. And it addresses guarding your heart. Verse 15, Malachi 2, verse 15. Didn't the Lord make you one with your wife? In body and spirit you are His. And what does He want? Godly children from your union. So guard your heart. Remain loyal to the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. To divorce your wife is to overwhelm her with cruelty, says the Lord of heaven's armies. So guard your heart. Do not be unfaithful to your wife. I want to tell you the number one cause of divorce is infidelity. Whether it's thought life or it's actually doing it. Because it destroys intimacy and when there's no intimacy, the enemy comes in and rips the marriage apart. That's what happens. You know, just this is one on one. When you do, when God does bring a, a woman into your life, your, your purity walk is going to have a direct connection to your, the success of your marriage. Okay? 100%. And I want to tell you this, as a result of walking in, in sexual purity, my relationship with my wife is off the chain. It's so much better than any relationship I ever had in the world. Our intimacy is so much more intense and incredible. The enemy wants you to take all these counterfeits, porn, and you know, have sex with all these people. Why? Because he doesn't want you to actually experience how totally radical it is to have sexual intimacy with your wife when you're walking in purity. I, I, I kid you not, man. I, I, I mean, I could give you guys testimonies. I don't think I'll do it for the sake of the, the, the teaching. But if you want to come up, I'll share with you. I mean, it is not even close. My intimacy and, and the pleasure that comes out of my relationship with my wife is like not even on the same scale as what I used to do in the world. I mean, literally. And that's the great secret that the enemy doesn't want you to know is that if you actually walk in this, there's greater pleasure for you in your covenant marriage than you've ever experienced before and greater intimacy and greater fulfillment you know, out of your relationship with the wife if you don't take all these counterfeits and you hold on and lay hold of the real thing that God has to offer. God loves pleasure. He loves joy. The scriptures say that at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Did you guys know it's just going to be like wave after wave of glory and pleasure, no pain, no suffering, I mean, God is a God of pleasure, but we, we need to walk out this basic training and choose Him, choose love. Okay, um, and, and here's, here's the deal. Um, okay, so guard your heart. So eye gates, thought life, and heart are significant. Um, another one, another way that we battle and have victory over sexual darkness is fasting. Fasting. That's right. I said it. The F word, man. You heard me. Fasting. And here's, it's for a number of reasons. You've heard in Mark 9.29 and Matthew 17.21, not every translation has this passage, but I absolutely believe it's from the Lord. This kind comes out by prayer and fasting. Sexual sin is of that kind. It only gets addressed fully in prayer and fasting because it's connected to denying your flesh. If you never deny your flesh and starve your flesh, 
then when sexual temptation comes, you haven't built up your say no to the flesh muscle. Okay? Fasting helps train you in the say no to the flesh muscle. And so, um, a lifestyle, a lifestyle of fasting is a great way to train your flesh to submit to the Spirit of God on the inside of you. When you, when you fast as a lifestyle, it's much easier to walk in sexual purity. In the same way, making provision to feed your flesh is going to strengthen your flesh. Fasting denies your flesh and allows the Spirit to strengthen and to come into leadership over your flesh. So what you're doing is you're intentionally weakening your flesh so that your spirit can grow and be fed and, and, and overcome and, and have leadership over your flesh. If you have a sexual sin problem, and this is an exhortation I would give to anyone who is struggling with a besetting sexual sin, I'd strongly encourage you to embrace a 40-day media fast. Cut out media for 40 days. Just do a 40-day media fast, no secular media. I'm not talking about Bible teachings and you know worship CDs. Don't get kooky on me. Okay? I'm talking about secular media and and the spirit of the age. Because ultimately what that's doing is feeding your flesh. That's really what media is about. That's that's a whole other teaching. But media fast is one of the biggest ways I know to break sexual strongholds. And I would challenge you to do this. Enter a lifestyle of fasting one day a week. Fast one day a week and do a 40-day media fast. You know what's awesome about this, you guys? You can find out how serious you are about getting free from sexual darkness. This is a really good rubber meets the road test for how resolved is your heart to get free. You know, I I love the guys who come running up to every altar call and say they want to get free from sexual darkness, but they don't want to actually say no to their flesh and deny themselves and walk out the hard work of actually coming into victory. Wouldn't it be, I mean, we're a drive-through culture. I mean, I love it when I can just drive through Burger King and get, you know, have it my way. Isn't that, I mean, isn't that like our culture? But in the area of sexual sin, you guys, there's no silver bullet quick fix. This is not how you get freedom in this area. The way you get freedom is, you know, denying your flesh, saying yes to the call of God to enter into a lifestyle of fasting. And then he gives you freedom from it because you begin to strengthen your spirit, deny your flesh. Then when temptation comes, it's not hard for you to say no. So many people have been saying yes to their flesh so much that they want to say no when temptation comes, but they don't have the spiritual strength to say no. Because why? They've been pampering their flesh, making provision for their flesh. So I challenge you, if you are walking in in sexual sin, embrace that challenge. 40-day media fast and then fast one day a week. And watch what God does with that. You're going to find your flesh is a lot weaker. You're also going to find out how strong your flesh really is. Right? I mean, this is a wrestling match. We need to put this flesh thing down. The other, um, the other way that I believe we can get freedom from uh, sexual sin, uh, you know, we've already talked about it. It's not found by trying harder. Okay, how many are still in agreement with me? Trying harder is not going to do this. Okay, this is going to be God that does this, but our partnership in that process matters. It's found, one of the ways it's found is by deeper daily surrender and something that I call radiation therapy. Radiation therapy. It's a term that was originally coined by Bob Sorge. He wrote a book called Secrets of the Secret Place. 
So it's not, I, I didn't come up with it, but I think it's awesome. Um, and we're going to check out some wisdom that backs this up, and I'll tell you, then I'll tell you what radiation therapy is. Go with me to Hebrews 12, verse 1 through 4. Therefore, since we're surrounded by a huge, such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he's seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. Think of all the hostility he endured from sinful people. Then you won't become weary and give up. After all, you've not yet given your lives in your struggle against sin. Now, what is this talking about? It's saying basically, listen, you're going to be in a lifelong struggle against sin. No one is free from that. But because of the great cloud of witnesses to this life of faith, cast off sin and you do it by keeping your eyes on Jesus, gazing at Jesus. It's also why in Psalm 119.37, the Lord exhorts us to take our eyes off worthless things and set our hearts on him. He's always trying to get us to not look at darkness, but to look at him. And I would suggest to you that as you gaze at Jesus in the secret place, as you enter into the reality of the Revelation 4 and 5 throne room scene, you know the one I'm talking about, the sea of glass, the throne, the elders, the angels gathered around. That's the place where we go in the spirit when we meet with God in the secret place. When you engage in worship, you're actually... Uh, you know, attempting by faith to lay hold of the reality of Christ sitting on the throne next to the Father. As you worship Jesus and as you gaze at Him in the secret place, either through the Word or through your intercession or through worship, He begins to change you at a molecular level. The more time you spend with Jesus, the more you're going to look like Jesus. It's just straight up truth, beloved. So when you gaze at the word, when you enter into corporate worship and you just say, Holy Spirit, take me, show me reality right now. Show me Jesus on the throne. Show me the angels and the elders. When you ask by faith and he begins to show you those pictures and you really enter into worship, you gaze at him. He's going to change you on the inside. The more time I spend with the Lord, the less I struggle with sexual sin. Just being real. The more I gaze at Jesus, the more I, the less I gaze at darkness. In fact, the more darkness just repels my soul. I don't like it. I hate lust. I hate sexual immorality. It makes me sick. I hate sin. Because I've been gazing at Jesus and he's been changing me on the inside. Are you seeing this? Okay, that's what I call radiation therapy. Get into the presence of God as much as possible. Make a commitment to spend time with the Lord every day. I don't know what that means for you, but I want to tell you what it probably isn't. It's probably not a daily devotional coming to your smartphone. You read through that and go, wow, that was good. And then you move on with your day thinking you got enough to battle the darkness that's out there. You're crazy. Okay? And if you think Sunday at church, when you, when you leave this program, if you think two hours on a Sunday is going to be enough to sustain you spiritually with the darkness that's coming upon the earth, you are crazy. You're crazy, beloved. That's not enough. You need your primary spiritual nourishment is not two hours on a Sunday. It's not from a, a, a one sentence, 
devotional that gets sent to your smartphone. Your primary spiritual nourishment needs to come in the secret place, spending time with the Lord every day in the Word, engaging His heart in worship, engaging Him in in prayer. That's what's going to sustain you. And then when you go to church on Sunday, the Word of the Lord gets confirmed. Amen? Okay? Make that shift now. Don't go out there and become an American Christian. We don't need any more. We don't need any more nominal Christ followers. Okay? Stay in this place of serious devotion. And as you spend time with Him, He'll change you at a molecular level the more time you spend in His presence. Reason number seven that we don't break agreement with sexual sin is that we don't know how to respond when we do sin. When we do sin, when we do fall into sexual sin, we don't know how to respond rightly. I know this might shock you guys, but you're probably going to sin before you die or before Jesus comes back. Could happen. Okay? not prophesying that over you. I'm just saying it could happen. And while we're aiming for perfection as we follow Jesus, that's what we're aiming for, amen? We're aiming for perfection as we follow Jesus. We're well aware that it's His grace that's going to sustain us, not our perfection, okay? Too many people lose the battle against sin because they don't know how to rightly respond when they do sin. Yes, sin will destroy you and your family and the body of Christ. And we went through all that parade of horribles. Amen? It's not good. Okay? It's really bad. But we're not ignorant of the enemy's devices. This is 2 Corinthians 2.11. He wants to tempt you into sexual sin so that if you say yes to it, even in a small way, he's going to slam you with condemnation and shame to get you to not bring it out into the light so that He can isolate you, bring you under more condemnation, and eventually destroy you. Is that not what the enemy does? Isn't he the one going, come on, you can do this, it's going to be alright? He's like your biggest cheerleader when you're like thinking about sin, and then all of a sudden, the minute you do it, he turns into your worst accuser. And he's like all over the top of you going, you suck. You know, Jesus doesn't love you. You know, blah, 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 blah. Mwah, 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 mwah. Okay? We, don't, we can't be ignorant of his devices. And what that means is when we do stumble, when we do sin sexually, what God is looking for is that you break agreement with it, you get up, you fall down, you get back up, dust yourself off, reboot, keep going. Okay? Don't sit and camp out on your failures. That will kill people. I see it kill people all the time. They get underneath shame and condemnation and they're so beat up, you know, because they hear the first part of the teaching, but not this part of the teaching, you know, and then they 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 never able to come out of it. And I want to tell you that one of your greatest gifts is confession and repentance and bringing sexual sin into the light. That's how you get freedom from it. So I don't care if you're doing it 20, 30, 40 times, you know, confess, repent, get back up, keep going. And if the Lord tells you, go confess to your brother. I don't confess to my brother every single time that something happens. You know? But I do when, when I see a pattern emerging and I realize, hey, it seems like I'm falling into this thing over and over again. I feel like God wants to escalate it and he has me go and confess and repent in front of a brother. You know why? Because it requires greater humility, doesn't it? I mean, it doesn't require much humility to confess your sin to God. It's not a shock to him. He's like, yeah, I was there. I saw it. You know? But it does take a little bit more humility to go to another brother and it, you know, and that's when the shame and condemnation might try and come, but that's actually where freedom comes. You know, James says, if you confess your sins to one another, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. Um, 
we see, uh, um, okay. Um, go with me to 1 John 1, 1 John 1, 5 through 10, and then we're going to, we're almost there. We're going to bring this home. 1 John 1, 5 through 10. I'm going to give you guys an assignment to walk this out. Confessing sin to another person brings greater humility, accountability, and releases grace to change. We see the call to transparency here in 1 John 1. I'm going to read 5 through 10. This is the message we heard from Jesus and now declare to you. God is light and there's no darkness in him at all. So we're lying if we say we have fellowship with God, but go on living in spiritual darkness. We're not practicing the truth. But if we're living in the light as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sins. I want to talk about that for a minute. Living in the light means you don't have unconfessed sin in your life. Okay, living in the light means whatever darkness was on the inside, you bring it into the light through confession and repentance. And then it says, then we have fellowship with one another. When you don't confess your sin and you've got hidden sin, it actually breaks intimacy. That's what this is saying. You're not going to have fellowship with your brothers and sisters. How many can tell when someone's in sexual sin? They, you know, you can't connect with their spirit as much. They're a little more, they keep it just kind of in the shallow. That's why you got people going to church that just kind of keep it at the one inch deep. Hey, how's it going? Hey, God bless you. And then they try and sneak out the back. You know what I mean? Why? There's, there's unconfessed sin. There's no transparency there. Without transparency, there's no intimacy. You know, if I was going to be in a relationship with you, if I'm not willing to, I don't care if I give this teaching, if I'm not willing to confess my sin, I'm a hypocrite, man. And I'm not going to have intimacy with you guys as my brothers. I'm not going to have intimacy with my wife. I'm not going to have intimacy with God. Are you seeing this? Unconfessed sin is an enemy of intimacy. And it's exactly why the enemy doesn't want you bringing your stuff into the light. Don't fall for that. Don't fall for that. Don't let shame and condemnation keep you trapped when freedom is actually in confessing it and repenting of it. If we resist confession and repentance, our hearts harden and eventually our conscience is seared, which means we can keep going in sin and we have no conviction, which is, how many know that's dangerville? So when the Lord is giving you grace to see that something's wrong, take advantage of it and come into agreement with Him. Because resisting that in a persistent way will actually harden your heart, sear your conscience, and He'll actually give you over to the way that you want to go until you hit a wall that's really going to blow things up. How many have hit a wall before? Okay. If you're here, most of you have hit a wall. So you know, you know, you know the end result of resisting the grace of God as He brings correction and conviction to our hearts. Reason number eight, we don't break agreement with sexual sin is that we need deliverance from a demonic stronghold. Demons are real. And... Believers can be demonized. Does that mean a demon's in you or outside of you? You know, I don't really care. If a demon is oppressing you, how many think it'd be good to get rid of the demon? Okay? Even if he's attacking you from outside or he's inside, who really cares? You are Jesus's, but if you, you know, if you sin, you're opening the door to darkness. And that happens whether you're a believer or not a believer. You know, if I get on internet porn and I'm a born-again believer, just because I have the Holy Spirit doesn't mean I'm not opening myself up to spiritual darkness. And I'm not going to go into a huge teaching on that right now, but I think there's Old Testament pictures that show us that believers can be. Of course, Jesus' ministry was a lot of casting demons out, wasn't it? 
Okay? So there may be a demonic stronghold. If you've, if you've got a particular area of significant brokenness from your past where you've said yes to darkness many times, you may have a demonic stronghold that needs to get addressed. And that happens through inner healing and deliverance. Um, demonic strongholds don't take away free will, but they severely inhibit you from making godly choices. And they join forces with our flesh. How many know that demons in our flesh are partners? They want to partner up to get us to go the wrong direction. And so, you know, it's one thing to be resisting temptation that's just kind of trying to find a place to land. It's another thing when there's a stronghold already in your heart that the enemy can use to really try and influence you. You still have choices to make. Um, but we need to deal with um, we need to deal with demonic strongholds. The good news is that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil and that if you repent, then they've got nothing to hang on to and they have to leave. (laughs) Okay, so when you break agreement, demons are only there because you're in agreement with them in some way. You're believing a lie of some kind that needs to be broken. So, but when you know the truth and you get it on the inside of you and you walk in it, uh, the truth will set you free. All right. I want to... um, I want to just real quickly give you guys an assignment. You guys have, for the last two weeks now, the first week, we kind of laid that biblical foundation for why sexual purity matters. This week, we're talking about why there are, you know, why we don't say yes or why we don't say no to sexual sin. There's a lot of reasons. What I'd like to do is give you guys the opportunity to actually let God minister to you in this area over this next week. And I want to give you an assignment. There's four things. So if you can get something to write with, I'm going to have you write them down. I would hate for you guys to hear all this teaching and then not have a chance to actually respond to it in a real way and let God minister to you. I'm reminded of, of, uh, you know, the exhortation in the New Testament where he says, you know, don't look in the mirror. I think it's James. Don't look in the mirror and see what you look like and then walk away and forget, (laughs) you know, what the Lord just showed you. So this is a real opportunity as you're listening to this teaching to bring things before the Lord. I'm going to give you four questions. Everybody got something to write with? If you don't, you want to... I'm going to give you guys a real simple... If you guys do this, you're going to get some freedom from sexual darkness. If you guys do this assignment. Um, Seeking God for sexual purity. Seeking God for sexual purity. There's four things that we're, that I'd like you guys over the next week to bring before the Lord. Might take a couple weeks, but I think doing it in a week would be better just so it doesn't get too stale. The first is to ask God about any generational sin in the area of sexuality. Just ask Him to reveal to you any area. Maybe He shows you your dad. Maybe He shows you a grandpa. I don't know what He's going to show you. Maybe He just shows you a picture of adultery. I don't know. But to ask the Lord to reveal to you if there's any generational sin issues that need to be addressed in your life. So that's the first one. Just write that down. We're not going to do that right now, but that's a question I'd like you to take before the Lord in your quiet time. Generational sin. So sin that's happened in your parents, your grandparents, or your family line that have caused you to experience sexual brokenness of some kind or exacerbated it. Two. Ask God about anyone who has wounded you through their sin. Wounded you through their sexual sin. 
This is real serious stuff, guys. I'm talking about a babysitter. You know, some of this stuff is stuff that you don't even have an active memory of. It's been pushed down. But ask the Holy Spirit to show you if there's something, a wound, because of someone else's sin against you. Could be an uncle that did something inappropriate. Could be an interaction you had with neighbor kids. Okay? I mean, whatever it is, you're basically just saying, God, would you come and show me if there's something that's happened to me because of someone else's sin that's wounded me and caused brokenness in my sexuality. So we're asking God to bring revelation about that. The third is, ask God about any ungodly relationships that you've had that need to be addressed. I'm being serious about this. I don't care if it's 200 people. You know, God will tell you who it is that he, that, that's a big deal. He may not have you do all 200, but he may give you 20 as a representative sample that he wants you to bring before him. So ask God about any ungodly sexual relationships that you've had in the past that are hindering you in any way from moving forward in Christ. Okay? And I'm going to talk to you guys about how you can ask God to break any ungodly ties that are still between you and any other person. Okay? So that's number three. Make a list of those people. The fourth, ask God about any sexual sin in your own heart. And it may have roots back in your past as well. It may have been you inappropriately touching someone else. Or you raping someone. Or you engaging in sexual immorality. Just ask Him to search your heart and show you what your issues are. Okay? Are you seeing this? Those four questions, if you're willing to go before the Lord and ask Him, write down the answers. And then what I'd like you to do is to connect with another brother here and actually go through the process, and I'm going to tell you what it is, uh, of, of dealing with those things. Okay, I'm going to give you kind of a blueprint for this. The first is conf- confession. Confessing it and bringing it into the light releases grace and healing. So as you bring it into the light and you ask for forgiveness, and this is both in the case of your own sin and generational sin, you can stand before the Lord and ask for forgiveness on behalf of your of, of your parents and your grandparents and whoever else the Lord might highlight to you. So you're going to confess their sin as well as yours. This is biblical. I can give you the scriptures of the people of Israel standing before the Lord and repenting for their sins and the sins of their ancestors. But God is looking for someone to stand in the gap and own this thing so that it can be wiped out with the blood of Jesus. So, and the consequences. How many know you're forgiven and you're justified before the Lord? Okay? That's all done, but there's still consequences, okay? God doesn't take consequences away just because you did a generalized repentance and you turned to Him. So He wants to bring us back and deal with and address some specific things so that we grow an understanding of how these things happen. So, confession and repentance, okay, for generational sin and for your own sin. So whatever God brings up about you, whatever He brings up about your family line, you just simply confess those things, ask for forgiveness, and then ask for grace from God to turn and to pursue it his, and to go his way. Um, the second thing that you're going to uh, do as you meet, so you're going to meet together and confess and repent whatever God brings up in terms of your sins or your ancestors. The second thing you're going to do is you're going to release forgiveness. Okay? You're going to release forgiveness. Now, obviously, forgiveness needs to be released to anyone who sinned against you. Amen? That includes your ancestors. So if your parents or your grandparents 
committed sexual sin or walked in adultery or immorality of some kind, release forgiveness to them. You actually have a claim in the spirit realm against them. Whether or not you're actively, you know, I'm not saying you have bitterness about it, but just release them and ask God to forgive them. Ask God to forgive you. Forgive the people who sinned against you. How many know that we've been sinned against? Okay, we need to release those people. And in my experience, we need God's help to do that. We can say that we forgive people and you might think, well, that's already taken care of. I already forgave them. But the Holy Spirit's going to highlight it to you and say, hey, there's something deeper there. Invite me in to come and help you forgive and release your claims. So you're just going to forgive them, release any claims you have against them. And you may need to forgive God. I know that sounds really crazy. But some people blame God for bad things that have happened to them. Okay? That was, the bad things that happened to you was not God, I assure you. He was not in favor of those bad things. But some of us wrongly get judgments, and the enemy loves when we do that, against God, because why did you allow me to get molested? Or why did you allow my little brother to get molested? You know, when in reality it was a human being in agreement with darkness that did that. God doesn't stop those things from happening, but he does want to fix them once he gets someone who is willing to agree with him. So you may need to forgive God. You may need to forgive yourself. That's another thing. So if the Lord shows you that you've got self-condemnation or you're blaming yourself for something that happened, you may need to actually ask God to help you forgive you. Okay? Does everybody understand what I'm saying? Okay. Then the last thing that you're going to do when you partner up with another brother is you're going to ask the Lord to break any ungodly ties between you and the people that you've been sexually involved with in the past. You're just going to ask Jesus the ones that he shows you. It may not be the list of 200, and I want to tell you how this happened for me. You know, when I realized that this, this happened, my wife had gotten some inner healing and deliverance, and she was telling me about it. As she was telling me about it, the Holy Spirit fell on me, you guys. Literally, we were driving from Minneapolis to Fargo, and I had to pull over, and it was like the Holy Spirit began showing me a PowerPoint of all these people that I had had intimate relations with, many of whom I didn't even know their name. Many of whom I had, you know, forgotten about, but the Spirit was bringing them up. And as he brought them up, I just said, God, would you break any ungodly ties between me and that person? And I actually prayed for their salvation, for their healing and deliverance. This is the redemptive part of, remember in the scriptures where God says he can use all things. He works all things together for good. So even those things the enemy got you to do in your past, God wants to use them to release prayers for salvation for those people that you were in ungodly relationships with. So just ask him to break those ties, ask him for forgiveness for those relationships, and then ask him to save those people and reveal himself to them. Amen? So those are the four. Do you guys think you can handle that? If, you're, if you say yes to this, you guys, you're going to get freedom from a lot of this junk and it's going to be easier to, to win the daily battle. Okay? Okay, so the first line, we, we want to, number one, teach you guys how to get free from this stuff without... You know, on your own, I want to tell you, I've gotten more inner healing and deliverance in the shower with Jesus than I have in any kind of formal ministry setting. So we want to get us in the habit of going directly to Jesus. Amen. But there's something powerful about pairing up and and walking through and talking through this. Before we close this time, I'm going to pray for you guys. And if anyone does want prayer in this or you've got questions about anything that we covered in the teaching, I want to invite you to come up and ask those. I'll hang out as long as I need to. Uh, to answer questions if you guys need them answered, okay? Thank you, guys. All right, we're going to pray. Father, thank you for your heart, for your sons, 
to be set free from the bondage of sexual sin and to be true men of God, walking in purity and to be ministers of light. That as you set these men free, God, I just pray for grace for them to say yes to this process, even though it might bring up painful memories, even though it might bring up things they'd rather not think about, God. Would you release grace to know that you are in this and that you want to bring healing through this. You want to bring victory over sin and you want to empower them to be able to be instruments and messengers to the church and to the lost that the gospel and and the son of God is powerful enough to set them free from sexual darkness in the midst of a culture that is saturated with sexual darkness. So I'm just praying for your grace. You're covering over them, God, that you would protect them from the evil one and his tactics and techniques of shame and condemnation, that you would equip them, make them wise and train their hands for war. God, there's such a great need for mighty men raised up who are burning with with the heart of God, burning in the secret place and are set free from sexual darkness. I just commit them into your hands, Father, and ask that you would finish what you've started in their lives in Jesus name. Amen.